Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. That's what Casey at the Bat's about. That feeling that's in your gut. Lee, have you ever actually heard of Casey at the Bat before today? So immediately when Chris mentions it, kind of in the beginning of the episode, I was like, oh yeah, Casey at the Bat, what is that? So I I feel like I've heard of that title before. And I really went down the rabbit hole, or at least just the Wikipedia page. (laughs) I've read, you know, they have a whole Wikipedia page on this poem. Um, So I read a lot of that. And I even listened to a recording uh, around, it was like a circa 1920 recording of uh, this famous sort of like vaudevillian DeWolf Hopper performing uh, the poem. And yeah, I just really wanted to understand because I knew this was going to be a central part of the episode. Yeah, you know, it, it does its own thing with Casey at the Bat, but I just wanted to have some context. But are you, Charles, did you know about this before yourself? No, I've actually never heard of Casey at the Bat. That was a big surprise to me. Yeah. Uh, learning about it. And I, I thought it was like a, like a Chris original right there. Oh. Like a Casey at the Bat. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like it, it's an uh, analysis <laughs> into some sort of baseball thing. And then when they got to the end, when they started ah. reciting it, I was like, no, 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 there's no way. Like, no way they actually wrote a poem <laughs> on this. <laughs> like, they got to have pulled awesome. this from somewhere. Yeah. And I looked into it and I was like, oh, this is, is super interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I think this is fascinating. I, I want to learn more about this. So, just like you, I also went down a rabbit hole and looked into Casey at the Bat. But before we talk about Casey at the Bat, Lee, who are we? What do we do? My name is Lee. You are Charles. And we are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. We spend every episode analyzing, overanalyzing Northern Exposure. Every episode of Northern Exposure. We're in season six now, getting close to the home. We're in the home stretch, getting close to the end. And um, I guess a little more context about the show is that I've um, I've watched Northern Exposure a lot. I'm a huge fan of this series. Uh, the season six, um, as many fans may know, maybe not the best season of the series. I actually only watched this once. I don't, I don't think I ever like would revisit it on rewatches. Charles, you're new to the show. I mean, we're in season six now, so you, you understand like everything there is about this show, except every episode that you watch now, uh, it's, it's the first time you're watching it. That's right. It's all fresh and new to me. So I'm looking at it. No idea what expectations are for this. Uh, other than the previous season six episodes that we've seen, which mm-hmm. we've been led to believe, not even led to believe, actually do believe that it is not <laughs> as strong as the earlier seasons. And I say mm-hmm. this because for today, I think this is a fantastic episode. I'm so glad you said that because I was really, I was really enjoying this episode when watching it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not... There are better episodes of Northern Exposure. Like, this show is amazing. But I felt, you know, moments in this episode, I was like, I kind of enjoy each of these plot lines, and I really like what's happening. Yeah, I wasn't, like, underwhelmed. A lot A lot of times, Northern Exposure, you know, when, it, when it's not great, I might be like, man, I wish they would have taken it here. Or, like, they just barely glanced, you know, this subject and there's a lot of big ideas in this episode that I think are sort of glances. You know, they don't uh, bog you down too much in it. But I'm glad that this is the focus of the episode. And each of, again, each of the plot lines I, I enjoyed um, pretty good, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's because it's clearly defined just from the very first shot of the episode. We can immediately recognize what are the themes, what's happening, what are each character trying to strive for. We can see that all within the first act. Whereas previously in the past few episodes, we've been left like a little Mm. bit wondering uh, right. wondering in both sense of the words, uh, homophone right here, like <laughs> they are actually wondering and wondering about where it's going to. But on this one, I feel like, okay, I know exactly yeah, how things should be playing out. I'm excited to get to the conclusion of how they're going to get to it and why. So I think that like on all measures of success, I think that The Graduate is overwhelmingly succeeding on this. I am exceedingly happy that the they did a very good job on this. Yeah, and I just want to piggyback on what you're saying there that you're bringing up. It's like some of these episodes that we're watching, it's kind of a mystery in a way. Like they're using that uncertainty of like, hmm, what exactly is happening here? That is um, a hook to draw you in. But where that can go wrong is... You know, it leads to these strange twists that you don't expect. You also just don't fully grasp, uh, like what you're saying in a good episode, you understand, or I guess in this episode's case, you understand what the stakes are and what's happening from the get-go, rather than some of those more like mysterious, curious episodes where you're just trying to figure it out and trying to guess what each character is going through which sometimes can be very rewarding with a reveal. I think that's the idea. It's like they want to uh, kind of keep you guessing and curious about it, and then there's a big reveal. But um, oftentimes it can just kind of go in directions where you're like, I'm not totally sure what they're trying to say with uh, whatever arc that was. Yeah, and I think on this one, there is still a little bit of that what are they trying to say type Mm -hmm. of nuance right here. But in the way that they're doing it in this one, I think it's very exciting to dig into and try to explore on what exactly they're trying to say. So without further ado, who are the directors and the writers? All right. This is uh, the 17th episode of season six. It's called The Graduate. Title makes sense. Chris is going to be, you know, trying to get a master's degree. I I get that. The director was James Heyman. And uh, he's directed a few episodes of Northern Exposure. He did Lovers and Mad Men. That was the season five finale. Uh, So far, so good in season six. Um, The Great Mushroom. And this episode, The Graduate, is the last episode that he directed. The writer was Sam Egan, who joined us here in season six. He did the episode The Robe earlier in the season, Real Politic this episode, and then he'll go on to write two more episodes after this. I remember pointing out before that this season seems to have like the least diverse uh, cast of writers. I mean, obviously, we always got Mitchell Burgess, Robin Green, Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider coming back, you know, Jeff Melvoin, but other seasons, I feel like they had a, a bigger pool of writers, whhereas for the final season, it's kind of focused on uh, not too many different writers. Finally, the air date was March 8th, 1995. All right. We're getting closer and closer toward the end. It's uh, kind of amazing that we started at 1990s on this. Yeah, this is five years later. It's crazy. Uh, well, you want to hop into the first scene? Yeah, let's talk about it. So on the very first scene, we opened with a 
We opened with Maggie on a close-up, and then we zoom out to reveal that she's looking into the store. And not just any store, it's a movie theater. And it's something that she purchased right underneath Maurice's fingers. Yeah, this is the old, like, Sicily movie theater, which had been closed down, we saw in a previous episode. I want to say it was, uh, it had to have been the um, the Mommy's Curse, where at the end of that episode, Maggie's mom suggests that she get into commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. And um, she's looking, she's just looking at the old theater. Um, sorry, I just said the Mommy's Curse. Was that written by, let me see. No, 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 no. I thought it would have been the same writer, but no, it was the director, Michael Lang, who we actually got on to talk about that episode earlier in the season. That's why I'm remembering, uh, <laughs> just seems very familiar. Um, and yeah, I mean, it turns out that Maurice was considering buying this uh, theater when it closed down, but as you said, Maggie swooped beneath him real quick and uh, and bought it up, taking her mom's advice, I suppose. She... Um, She's, she's there with Maurice in the scene. They're kind of talking about it, and uh, they swing the doors open. The interior is quite dusty, abandoned, and kind of ruined and broken down. And there's like an odd dripping sound. Like, is that like, I guess, snow melting? Because it's still uh, quite snowy in Sicily. It, it looks a bit decrepit, but we can see in Maggie's um, reaction, her expression, she's excited. She sees uh, like a positive future here. Yeah, and we can immediately tell that it's going to be a fixer-upper. That place is, like you said, decrepit. It's falling down. And you can see that Maggie's stepping into a whole new world that she may or may not be prepared for, as Maurice points out. Well, Charles, you want to continue down this plot line? Uh, We normally take each plot line one by one. Yeah, we can. Okay, so in the next scene, Maggie has uh, some employees. She's got Heather Haynes. This is a Returning to the series, I believe we saw her in, um, there was Eye of the Beholder, which I thought was great. And is she in another episode, um, in this season? Uh, Eye of the Beholder, is that the one where they hired the detective? Yeah. Ronaldo Pine Tree. And yeah. then I'm just curious if she shows up again. Before, I don't know if she does. Yeah, like I thought. Okay, maybe it was just these couple episodes. Actually, I can. This is this is why Moose Chick exists. Let's see. Uh, yeah, so she appeared in Eye of the Beholder, and she's going to appear again uh, quite soon. Uh, this is the actress Charmaine Craig, uh, Heather Haynes. It turns turns out that I think a lot of fans online really dislike this character, and I think I can understand um, the way she's sort of revealed in in the eye of the beholder is she she is like a, a femme fatale that's you know like she's um attractive kind of like um supportive of ed but then in the end she's kind of revealed to be the sort of the true villain of that uh insurance fraud or whatever was happening in that episode mm-hmm. um she was the one who left the rake or, or whatever that that hayden keys tripped on so she was like not the evil mastermind, but it was kind of her fault in the end. And in this episode, you know, I like that they aren't, uh, I like that they sort of continue that. I think Heather is, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm happy to see her again, but in the end she's, you know, the character is kind of soured. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) What what is your reaction to Heather Haynes? Yeah. And I think that we're going to get to it whenever we you know, arrive at the end of this plot line right here on the reveal of her character. But I think that it is kind of interesting that the significant other for Ed is by all accounts, 
a regular girl and it's a regular teenage girl. She does regular teenage things and gets into regular teenage girl problems. And mm. you might also argue and say like, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, it's a teenager somewhat. And he doesn't get into these problems. He doesn't, you know, he's responsible. He makes sure that things are done. And I would say that it is actually pivotal for her to fail in this episode, because I think that one of the big themes that will make more sense once we get into the other plot lines is the theme of acceptance and Mm. coming to own your faults. And I think that Heather has to come on the other side of that fence, the the failing side of accepting. Ah. And then we're going to get other plot lines where we have, you know, a more positive oriented one. But for her, we see it through that negative lens. As in like, she's not realizing, you know, her faults. She's not, she's, she's not aware of them. Somewhere around there. She's kind of ignoring them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's something that they had to explore right there. Now, there comes another question of like, is she a suitable significant other for Ed? (laughs) And in some ways, I think yes and no. The obvious answer for no is like, she doesn't seem all that interested in film. She doesn't seem like a very quirky, eccentric individual that would line up with the interest of Ed. So you could very easily point out and be like, absolutely not. They're a terrible fit. But, you know, like Ed's relatively new to relationships. And, you know, it would make sense that his like first one would be with just a regular person. Uh, first one, you're, you're forgetting um, Light Feather. Yeah, but that was like, that was, like, <laughs> was, that, that was more over like uh, a fling or something. Yeah. Uh, but no, this they definitely seem to be sort of a an item, you know, uh, at least, uh, I mean, we'll get, let's, let's just, let's keep going through this plot line, um, because we'll see pretty soon them making out. But, uh, in this scene first, we learn that Ed is going to manage the theater for Maggie. And he's also going to be the in-house film consultant, which I think is essentially just like the programmer who chooses what movies will play. Maggie even says that she's like, she would like to to change the bill a couple times a week, which I think is pretty, like, for, especially for a small town. I feel like, you know, movies play in my city for a couple weeks, you know, before they leave the theater. I guess they're always, you know, trying to introduce a new thing maybe once a week, but that's pretty, tw- you know, a couple times a week changing the bill, I think is um, it's pretty impressive. I guess it's just one screen, but still. Yeah. We've talked about this before. I want to say, like, honestly, back in season one, so like this is a years from now on the podcast, but we talked about our own hometown having a theater very similar to the one that Maggie is trying to open up. Mm-hmm. It was like one in which um, they would show old films from, not like old 1950s film, but like films that had run their course yeah. in the theater and then it returned. So like, for example... I'd, I'm not going to get the dates exactly right. I apologize for this. But like Snow Dogs, for example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's say it came out in 2003. It would be in that theater in 2004. So it's yeah. like, and, it was, they were just the gore- same. This was the, the, you know, the film print. So it's like the the same film print that had already run its course. It's all scratchy. I think you described it, Charles, as like looking purple and like just yeah. stained <laughs> and bad. Yeah. That, that was just a very... Uh, <laughs> I mean, looking back at it now, I think it's adorable. I think it's like, oh, this is, it's it's cool, actually, in a oh, way. Because yeah. nowadays, like, theaters, they're like a whole thing. They make it into, like, this whole experience along with, you know, jacked up prices. But that theater was like, it was like a dollar. It's a dollar cinema. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
that's the that's the vibe I'm getting on the theater that Maggie's trying to open right here. Except that the films that she's picking are the ones that are you know beholden to Ed's taste, and he throws out a couple films that maybe you would know Ed, but to the layman, <laughs> they really wouldn't know these. Did you have you seen any of the films that he lists in this absolutely uh, in not this scene or episode? <laughs> I <laughs> thought we might have seen uh, last year at Marion Bad together, but maybe mm. not. Yeah, and I, I was actually really curious on this. So one of them that he references is, uh, is it All Eyes on Me? Uh, eyes Without a Face. That eyes one? Without a Face. Is that really, is that like a story about plastic surgery? Uh, I have seen it. It's been a few years, but yeah, I want to say like the person, you should look up the poster or images from it. The person has like a mask and I think they get some oh. sort of uh, face, either injury or surgery um, and so you just see the eyes and then it's kind of this white mask covering the rest of it. I do remember it being pretty cool um, or pretty eerie at least. So, but yeah, Ed says that people love, audiences love plastic surgery movies or something. They really yeah, like. Yeah, he says audiences, they get all emotional over plastic surgery stories. And I thought that was like a term, you know, like, oh. uh, yeah, like, you know how, like, purple prose is a term okay, for, like, yeah. writing that is very flowery? I thought that's, it was something like that. And I was, like, looking all over. I was, like, what is a plastic surgery story? And then I figured out, I was, like, oh, he no, means, like, literal. literal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literal. That's the subject or the uh, the topic there. Um, let's see. We also learn in this scene that Heather is very appreciative of the job, excited to take it up, because this means she can live independently of her father's wealth. Her father's Lester Haynes, like the one of the other rich people in the area apart from Maurice and apparently she's moved out of her father's house so she's got her own place i don't know if it's in sicily or wherever but she's taking this job to um basically to assert independence from her father and we learned that she's also a projectionist cuz she used to do that in her father's media room so that's pretty cool all right and that brings us to the next scene which is a fixer upper scene so it's where the times are good and everyone's having a good time because <laughs> Ed and Heather are dancing to the, the sweet tunes of something on the radio. What? Wait, wait, hold on. I got to figure out what this song is. I'm pretty sure it's an oh. actual song. Well, it says, I'm looking at Moose Chick. It just says jazzy tune when oh, it's Ed not and Heather real? dance. Well, I don't know. It could be, but it might just be a, uh, a David Schwartz original. I'd really like to know. But more importantly, Charles, what are we going to cut this like we're gonna take this footage and cut it to another song what should it be <laughs> i have uh, just the goofiest dancing surely uh, i don't know let's dance by david bowie <laughs> yeah that's a good, something like that <laughs> we'll definitely create something uh ridiculous i love their dance moves here and heather's like get down ed he's like doing some sort of dance move and then they just all of a sudden start making out like crazy yeah it's that teenage energy i'm telling you man they're just doing teenage <laughs> stuff and you can see that they're having a great time and then maggie comes in interrupting their skittily pippin <laughs> and you can see that she's busy as a bee she's trying to get the theater running she's getting all sorts of things readjusted and this is where we kind of get to like the first crux of the issue which is between Maggie trying to be a cool boss and Heather not really owning up to responsibility because Heather says that she wants to go to the baby shower and Maggie has already said like, oh, I'm not going to that. Uh, you know, I got too much work right here. And it's implied that like, if I'm working, you're working as well. But then Heather's like, oh, you know, like Ed's got it doll. You know, he, he can take care of it and it, it'll only be a few hours. And then Maggie trying to be this, uh, you know, she wants to create this image that 
you know, she's a very easygoing person and she wants to please everybody. So she lets her off. Yeah. I forgot to mention that last scene when Heather was, uh, you know, saying how appreciative she was of the job. She points out that it's so cool of Maggie to hire her because, you know, because they're friends. She says, normally, you know, people don't like work, you know, don't like hiring their friends, like keeping friends in business a little separate. Um, so they point that out that, you know, maybe Maggie is letting Heather leave the job because, as you said, Charles, she just wants to be uh, a likable, sort of easygoing, a friend to Heather. But it's kind of hard to do also when you're running a business here. I mean, Heather definitely likes the idea of having this job, but I don't think she realizes the commitment that it will take, you know, to she's kind of blowing off a lot of the the work, um, which they're at least from what we see from Maggie's perspective, and I guess what we saw in the opening of the episode, like there's a lot of work to do to get this place up and running. Um, I just I just don't think Heather is interested in that. She just wants the idea of this job. Yeah, well, it's it's also like the idea of it, but she is genuine in wanting to get out underneath her father's hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she even has a remark in this scene saying the like, you know, I didn't realize how difficult it was with how many bills that just stack up that ordinarily mm-hmm. you would never think about. So I think she truly does want to move out and all of that. Yeah. I think that it's just more difficult for her to achieve. Anyway, we can see this really play out in the next scene, which is where the good times turn a little bit more sour because you're suddenly realizing that two individuals <laughs> are not nearly enough to handle yeah. the front desk. Well, it's not really called a front desk. What would you call that? It's like the um, the refreshments, the lobby, you know? Yeah. I kind of all in one. Yeah, I think that's a better term for it. Because, yeah, I mean, like someone's got to hand out the refreshments, but also someone needs to like clean. It's almost like hard to be mad at Heather in this scene because, as you said, Charles, it really is not – two people are not enough for this job. Basically what happens is, I mean, we open up with uh, – I wouldn't say like a packed movie theater, but like for Sicily, this is uh, pretty poppin'. Like they're screening this black and white film, which I think later we hear is Bicycle Thieves. And, uh, you know, people are, there's tons of people in line for concessions. They've already run out of milk duds. And um, Heather, you know, kind of coming out of the bathroom, notifies Ed that someone vomited in there. She's like, what do we do? And Ed's like, "Uh, well, uh, I think probably better clean it up, you know, if someone vomited (laughs) in there. And Heather says like, that's a... She, that's a no-go for her. Like, she just can't do vomit. So Ed is like, okay, well, that's cool. Like, I understand. I will clean the bathroom. You take over the refreshments. And uh, she does, but the um, projector bell dings, which means you got to change the film roll. So like, yeah, I mean, it's not technically her fault. She like does need to run up to the projection booth. Like the customers are going to have to wait just because they're understaffed. But I guess she also doesn't get to the projector in time because of this. The changeover is poorly done. And we get, I think, as close as we'll ever get in Northern Exposure to an F-bomb. Uh, <laughs> Hayden, Keyes, Hayden Keyes is watching the movie and the changeover is not happening correctly. He turns back to the projection booth and says, what the f-? And then like he doesn't finish it. But we hear that hard F sound. <laughs> like he's about to drop the F-bomb. I think that like... Okay, I don't know why. Maybe this is more something to a, uh, you know, it's a me thing. I would never turn around and yell <laughs> boo at the projectionist. <laughs> after the, the projectionist. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> uh, okay, honestly, like, okay, like, 
you can see it's a simple error. Like it's not intentional. There's no way the projectionist was like, yeah, it seems about right. Like we should do this. Like it's just, you know, they're under staff. Like why did you, your first instinct wasn't like, I'm going to get up and go talk to the projectionist, you know, get this done. Your first instinct said, turn around and just start booing. Like, I mean, you're, you're a terrible human being. <laughs> I was going to say, I, uh, I maybe took the opposite from this because I have been in some situations at like big movie plexes where like the, the sizing of the image was either like too big or too small for the screen and things like that, like the volume too low. And I've, you know, what I do is if I catch it early enough, I'll get out of my seat and run and like, let someone know. But I always hate missing like the beginning of a movie. So I don't know if, if they can hear me in that projection booth, maybe it would be better if I turn around. <laughs> you just start, start booing, booing at him. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I just, to, just surely, to, uh, surely they're not there though. Right. Like the projection is, isn't going to sit oh, through the you're entire You're also movie. right. Yeah. You're also right that now the way things work is it seems like they might just like hit play and have to run. They have to check on a number of different, um, projection booths. Maybe even back in the day they would do that as well, but they would time it out so that they would be ready for the changeover. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, man. I'm just, uh, yeah, I don't need to talk about all the bad movie going experiences I've had, but, um, I also, I will, I will say, I will say this, that I do, despite everything I just said, I do strongly recommend anyone listening, go see a movie in the theaters. There's a lot of good movies playing at the time of this recording. So it's always better in a movie theater. I love watching movies at home. I have a, you know, okay sound system and okay TV, but it's really great to see it on a big screen. Sorry. What were you going to say, Charles? (laughs) No, 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 no. I wholeheartedly... You know, I'm with you, man. You got to support the dying industry right here, especially with uh, all the things going on. Uh, I was going to say that, like, maybe it's because I'm used to, you know, I'm used to living in a post-COVID environment where things are understaffed, where, like, you go through the okay, drive through yeah. the Popeyes, and, like, the guy taking the order is also the guy cooking the order. So, like, if they take, like, a little bit of time to come out to the booth and take my credit card, I'm like, that's fine. I, I completely mm-hmm. understand. Like you're, you're obviously understaffed. This is not your fault yeah. in, in any way. I'm not going to yell at you for this. <laughs> like, so I'm yeah, way more understanding no. now. Under, I am way more understanding now of lack of staff. Yeah, I think having that boot, the booing someone that's that's a bad attitude. But I mean, just I'm thinking about these movies. You keep, like when you're in a movie theater, they can't start it over. Like they're not going to do that. That because the time schedule, like it's just impossible. Like it can't. Oh, really? I've had that. I, mean, happen I don't to think me. so. They've started the movie over. Yeah, yeah. There was okay. So uh, <laughs> well, you're lucky because they they usually won't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because it was the last showing or something like oh, okay. that. So yeah, like, yeah, they yeah, had yeah. more more room to play with. Yeah. So like in oh, gosh, I still remember the date. It was like 2013 or something like that. It was for X Men's Days of Future Past, and <laughs> this was not okay. a technical error. What was happening was that there was an individual sitting at the uh, the front end, and we were at the back end, and someone just kept talking at the front end. And then wow. one of the people I was with was like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, could you just please be quiet? And that guy was like, no, I'll, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm not going to take your advice. <laughs> and it, it just kept going back and forth. And then eventually, um, my friend just like got sure up and he just went. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was just like, hey, I'm sorry. He, like, everyone in the theater can hear him talking. And he's, he's yeah. disruptive and everything. And they escorted him out. And they actually gave us all. That's amazing. Oh, they uh, gave you the free. Like, yeah. Yeah, they gave us free, like a free, free card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And That's then they awesome. rewinded the film. 
That's great. Yeah. Well, actually, now that you bring it up, I think I think if it is like the last screening, then that could be like as long as the people working there are okay to like stay longer. I was at a screening of In the Mood for Love recently, and it was a midnight movie screening. And this is a movie in, I guess, I mean, it's probably it's in like a bunch of different Chinese dialects. I don't think it's in just one language, but um, there's no English. And uh, the movie started and there were no subtitles and there was no like projectionist <laughs> working because it was the, uh, there was no projectionist working because it was a midnight movie. It was just like the kids running the refreshments and they're like, we don't really know how this works, the system, like we we can like restart it and see if it loads with subtitles. Like we don't know how to, you know, we just hit play. And so they tried it again and it didn't work. And they're also, well, they were like, if it doesn't work, like we can still just play the movie without subtitles if anyone wants. And I think some people were like, yeah, let's do that. But no, someone in the crowd was like, do you want my HBO max login? Cause it was, oh the my movie was God. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Uh, but they did give us um they gave us like two free tickets, I think. I got, I got oh, really? I was with I was with a friend and we got three. I was with my okay. partner. We got we got three tickets instead of two. I think of all the films to not have <laughs> subtitle files were long car way. It's like <laughs> because three, even if you always... speak one of even if you speak one of the languages, you can't you won't understand the other. It's usually like three languages in the film. Yeah, exactly. It's like none the of the worst film to not have subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so oh, funny. Why is this the best thing I've ever heard this week? Okay, right, I'm sorry. Uh, we're getting we're getting a little bit out of um out of the topic right here. So what's happening here is that the theater is getting a little bit too chaotic, and we can start to say like, okay, Maggie's gonna have to do something about this. Oh, I will say I was on Heather's side because I was like, it's not necessarily her fault. It's just like they're understaffed. I was on her side up until like the end of the scene. Um, you know. Heather has to go to the projectionist booth because the bell dings at the changeover and Ed is now working the refreshments, still has a long line of customers. And, and then Heather comes down and says, Hey Ed, do you want to come watch the movie in the projection booth? It looks really cool up there. Definitely a bad idea. I mean, there's a, there's a line of customers right there. They can't just leave the lobby. I don't know what's going on. Like she's in her own world. She, she doesn't, I, I don't, yeah, she doesn't like see the work you know, that, that is required. Right, 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 right. And she's being disrespectful of, you know, other people's time right here. <laughs> uh, well, we can really see this come into a head on the very next scene, which is actually the first time that we're going to see Phil, mm -hmm. you know, Phil Capra is back on the scene and he's visiting Maggie in the theater after it's closed down after the day is over. And I gotta say, I don't know why, I, I guess this is just like, maybe this has been baked into my brain after six seasons. But when I saw Phil, it was kind of like a return to form, as if he was like a figure of authority, mm. somebody that was just like on top of their stuff mm -hmm. was coming into the scene. I, I don't know. It's a weird phenomenon when I saw him because maybe it's because it was, you know, like 23 minutes into the episode, but I was yeah. happy to see him. I was like, oh, shoot, town doctor's here. Yeah, I am surprised how much I do like Dr. Phil Capra and Michelle on this rewatch because obviously when I saw season six the first time, I'm like, okay, these are just clearly a replacement for Joel, which is what they are. You know, they're just clearly trying to fill that hole. And it it's never gonna really be the same as Joel, unfortunately. Um, but maybe that's that is something they can use to their advantage, the show, you know. I don't know if it ever really succeeds, but I don't dislike uh, these characters. Um, we, we talked about them before, like in the last episode. It kind of feels like they are one track or 
kind of feels like they're repeating a lot of their same anxieties and problems, uh, even when it's like, oh, I thought they got over that in one episode. Um, it was the last episode that we watched, Charles, when you were like, we're in season six and we're still talking <laughs> about how like they want to leave Sicily. Like he can't like. Yeah, yeah. I I am glad they did not, you know, they didn't stay on that topic right there. Yeah. And instead, Phil is coming in because he's trying to tell Maggie that uh, people have been coming into his office because there is an outbreak of Staphylococci. Staphylococci. Yeah, sta- sta- I know it's staph. I just I just say staph infection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce the full thing. Um, yeah, it, from he's his guess his like detective work is probably the butter that they put on the popcorn went rancid, and he tells her I'm I'm afraid I'm gonna have to you're going to have to dump out all the butter and sterilize the dispenser. And he says, don't worry, Maggie, like I'm going to keep this under my hat. We don't need to panic anybody. As long as you can take care of it, you know, it'll, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a huge deal. No one's like just, you know, people are getting sick, but no one's going to die. And Phil stays with us to the next scene because he's checking out, um, what, what show is playing here? This must be, let me see. I'm, I'll see it if it, if it's in my notes. No, I, I didn't write down what it was. It might still be Bicycle Thieves. Is it still Bicycle um, Thieves? It looks too famous. It looks like a very, very iconic film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm an idiot for not remembering, but it's like I. <laughs> well, I'm an idiot for not even recognizing it <laughs> since college. So, well, he's checking it out, and Maggie comes and sits with him and tries to talk to him more about. Uh, you know, like, how are people doing? But also, I kind of want to talk about myself. And they step outside for a bit because they're talking in the midst of the showing. And this is where I thought it was, like, I could see what they're trying to do. And this is, this might be, like, the only ding I'm going to give against the episode mm-hmm. where Maggie's trying to lay out all the things that's happening to her. She's saying, like, I can't sleep. You know, everything's just going south. And it's been happening for about three to four days. And then Phil says... Uh, didn't you open the theater three or four days ago? And she's like, yeah. And it's like, come on. Like, <laughs> it's, it's obviously connected to this. Uh, but the way that they turned this around, or at least tried to explore more, is that that's not the cause of friction. The cause of friction is that she's accusing Phil of saying that he's thinking that she's not up to the task of running a theater. And that's why he diagnosed her with a stress-related thing, which is... It kind of works, kind of doesn't work, because, like, stress has no indication of your ability to properly run a business. But, you know what? That is where she came to her conclusions. Yeah, it is a it is a kind of stereotypical Maggie response. It just makes me think of her reaction to a lot of what Joel would say. Like, she would take some things personally, which, I mean, why shouldn't she step out? You know, she's, like, very... You know, she's a very proud person. Why shouldn't she be proud of herself and be like, well, you don't think I can do this? But maybe she takes it a little too far. But I thought she would, um, it almost seemed like she figured it out in the middle of the scene, but she, she didn't um, say it yet, or maybe she hasn't figured it out. But as she's talking to uh, Phil, she has a short interaction with Heather because like they step out into the lobby and she sees Heather there behind the counter. And she's like, hey, Heather, could you like run the carpet sweeper across the lobby? And Heather's like, oh yeah, of course, just um, just right as soon as my nails dry. And she's like painting her nails at work. She's unable to do any work for, I don't know, like 10, 15 minutes. It's like, you can't just, I mean, I guess you can take a break. Like maybe you would paint your nails on break, but she's like on duty. You know, she should be, she should be doing some work here. I guess, you know, Maggie's maybe 
I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to, I'll take sides and say Maggie's right here. Like what is Heather, uh, <laughs> what is Heather doing painting her nails? But whenever that quick response happened, it was kind of in the midst of Maggie talking with Phil. And I thought she would just peg it and be like, oh, I know why I'm uh, so stressed. It's because Heather, like Heather is the one that's making <laughs> me feel sick. I mean, not necessarily Heather, but just the idea of her having to be, she's going to have to be a, uh, a tough boss not only to Heather, like she also has um, some changes she needs to bring up with Ed that we'll get to, but um, but it's the Heather thing that I, I think is really sort of the emotional focus of uh, the problem here. Right, and we see it on the climactic scene between her, Ed, and Heather, where she brings them into the theater to talk about how things should be run in the theater. And she tells Ed that, you know, maybe we could have these art house films, but they gotta be like every other week saturday midnight showing we can't be having this all day at all showings so as much as you might dislike it ed uh you gotta go call up the people the distributors and get them to send us a copy of dumb and dumber which i i get what mm -hmm. they're trying to say because like the title itself dumb and dumber yeah you're dumbing yourself down <laughs> you're trying to make yourself more appealable to everybody which is maggie's entire thing is trying to be universally beloved but also, Dumb and Dumber is a good film, though. It's a good movie. I wrote, yeah. oh, come on, Ed. Come on. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber's great. Because <laughs> he, like, repeats it to her, and he's like, Dumb and Dumber, really? But she points out, it's like, if we can't, um, if we can't overhaul this, if we can't, you know, fix what's wrong here, Maurice is going to own this place. Like, he'll buy, the, like, we'll have to close down, Maurice is going to buy this. And I like that uh, Ed's response is, Maurice... Well, he only likes police procedurals. <laughs> it's like, you know, but yeah, they got to start programming more mainstream stuff. Um, they may even do first run films, which are quite expensive, but they can still save money by sharing prints between um, here and Sleep Mute. She says bicycling films between here and Sleep Mute. I don't know if that means like just sharing the prints, like when they're done, or if that literally means like, we put the film cans in the back of a bike, like <laughs> pedicab, and bike it across. Probably what not does that. Uh, what does first run films mean? I think that just means uh, when they premiere, like when the movies come out. Like you know how uh, Charles, when we were talking about that movie theater on our hometown, that mm -hmm. would not be first run. That would be like oh. you know after after first run, I guess. Second, I don't know if you call it second run or yeah. So they've already okay. been played. Like the prints could be if they're not handled properly, they could be cruddier. You know. Okay, got it. And that brings an end to the talk with Ed. But now Maggie has to talk with Heather. And <laughs> like we've been alluding to this entire time, Maggie tells an anecdote about her life, about how it always feels like she's running for homecoming queen and she wants everyone to like her. And I get it. I respect it. Like, I, I can totally empathize with what Maggie is trying to say on saying the right things all the time because you want to please everybody. You're a people pleaser. Yeah. But those aren't qualities that are beneficial for you as a boss. You have to make difficult decisions. And so, you know, this isn't a very complex problem. Maggie is saying, that, like, I have to fire you because you did something that was grossly negligent with the popcorn incident. I can prove that you were negligent and you're not really owning up to the problem either. So you got to be cut loose. Yeah, I was pretty excited when Ed was leaving. I I wrote in my notes, okay, Maggie's about to rip Heather apart. Like, you know. <laughs> but ultimately at the end of the scene, 
I mean, she did the right thing. Like, obviously, as you're watching this episode, it it, it, uh, it leads you to expect it's okay. Heather's just not a good worker. Like, we got to fix something about that. But ultimately, I'm like, man, this kind of sucks a little. Like, Maggie is the man, you know, as in like the school of rock, you know, the movie, the school of rock, the man, Mm -hmm. she's like, Donald Trump, you're fired. You know, it's (laughs) kind of like, it's the sad truth, I guess. I don't even know, like if that's even the truth, it's the truth that this episode presents, but it's the, uh, the sad truth of, of running a business and being a boss. Right. And it goes, like I was saying earlier, it does have that theme of acceptance where like Maggie has to accept herself and say like, I'm not always going to be liked and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I have to run difficult decisions. And for Heather's case, she's going on to the opposite end where she says like, okay, if I want to become a fully fledged adult, I want to grow apart and live an independent life. Then I need to accept the responsibilities that come with that. And ultimately she fails to live up to those, to those standards, Mm -hmm. which is why she gets fired from this job because she's irresponsible. Heather's going to return pretty soon here. Do you think that she'll have changed or she'll still be that sort of like sneakingly bad character, you know, (laughs) revealed to be bad? Uh, An arc of a good character is that they learn. So hopefully she is a, you know, (laughs) she learns some of this experience. We're not saying that she's a bad individual. We're saying that she did this thing in a bad manner. I should also say in Eye of the Beholder, uh, we were both kind of critical of her acting. I I don't think she was, I don't think she was that, like she felt, the phoniest. She felt like a character that was like just fictional brought into this world, you know, that felt a little more real. Uh, I think she's a lot better in this episode. I think um, she doesn't feel as out of place. And yeah, I think I think she's a good actor. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know her in there. Did I think like, ah, oh, now this is taking me out of the immersion. <laughs> well, then I think our last scene in this plot line here is um, actually this is the last part of it, right? Mm hmm. Okay, one more scene here. I don't have a whole lot of notes except, I mean, it's Ed and Maggie here. Heather has been fired. And Ed is a bit discouraged that his um, movie picks, I think he picked Nosferatu, is uh, not as popular as Forrest Gump, which they are playing. He also says something like, yeah, I mean, like, if we had Tom Hanks in Nosferatu, that would be a blockbuster. I disagree. Again, I think that's a bad (laughs) idea. Um. But is there, that's all that I had in my notes. So I wonder if I like accidentally deleted or is that all that happens in that scene there? No, no, that's basically it. That's basically they open it. the theater. Yeah. We have a shot of Tom Hanks starring in Forrest Gump, which. Oh, there is a shot of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a, it opens oh, wow. with a shot of Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I don't think that's like, Forrest Gump isn't a bad film. It's a good film. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I do like Forrest Gump. I remember, I think we watched it together, Charles, like on a band trip once, if you remember. I, yeah, yeah. I thought that that was kind of wild because <laughs> I did not think that maybe it's because I'm a highly puritanical, but like, I didn't think they would show a film that had like a sex scene in it. Now they didn't show like penetration or anything like that, but there is that scene early in the film where Forrest Gump's mother has to persuade the principal to accept Forrest into the school. I actually can't remember. Uh, the- she sends him. She sends him outside to go like on mm-hmm. the swing set, and you can obviously hear her her having sex with him. Oh, wow. and then he comes outside. And he's like, "Your mother would do anything for you." And I was like, that's kind of risque for a, <laughs> for right. a film of this yeah, for, for a band trip. Um, yeah, I mean, I do like Forrest Gump as far as I remember. It's been a while, and again, I couldn't even remember that. I will say I think popular opinion has 
has turned against Forrest Gump. I think a lot of people really? think it's pretty pretty cheesy and very boomer of a film. <laughs> you should revisit it, Charles, to see. I how mean, how, isn't it? Is, but. Isn't Forrest Gump like long? It's like three hours, right? I don't remember, but I think it is pretty long. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty long film right there. Because I, <laughs> I, I know this because we didn't finish it. We got to our destination before before the film ended. <laughs> uh, well, that's the end of that plot line. Regardless, um, yeah, we'll see Heather again. Hopefully, we see the movie theater again. I was kind of missing that. I like when we get scenes in that uh, Sicily cinema movie theater, whatever you call it. Um, there are two other plot lines in this episode. Charles kind of mentioned a little bit about, uh, Chris trying to get his master's degree. Then there's also a plot line with Hauling and a young man, uh, Patrick Dulac. I don't know what you'd like to focus on next. Charles, what, what do you think? Uh, let's go into Patrick Dulac. Let's explore a little okay. bit into Hauling. So Hauling's plot line begins with them as per usual at the brick. And now a very well-dressed, quote-unquote, stud muffin, according to Shelley, <laughs> enters into the establishment. Patrick Dulac. Yeah, he's wearing a uniform. I actually don't remember what, uh, oh, it's Canadian Defense Ministry. But I don't know like what branch or what that is, but he's wearing like a sort of like a military man uniform. Uh, again, like young, dashing, you know, ambitious young man. He enters and calls hauling uncle. And Holling assures Shelley that this is just a term of endearment. Um, but he says he's stopping in Sicily on his way to Kyoto. He's a translator with the Canadian Defense Ministry. He's going to work in Kyoto in Japan. And he has a few days to spend in Sicily. We learn in this scene that Holling had been sending uh, Patrick and his mom has been sending them a monthly check. And because of this, Patrick believes Holling is his father. He's like, I finally put it together. And now that we see each other face to face, you can't deny that you're like mon père. You know, my, he's, he speaks a lot of that, uh, you know, French, I guess that's sort of Quebecois or something. Um, Holling denies it, you know, in this first scene, he's like, no, I'm not your father. But Patrick goes along with this just uh, far enough because he just wants to spend more time together with Holling before he leaves. So he's like, ah, ha, ha, yeah, sure, whatever you say, Pop, you know, you're not my dad. Uh, what I do appreciate is that this is not one of those episodes where Holling is like trying to keep everything under wraps. I mean, he does have a secret, but it's like there are a lot of episodes where Holling just won't tell Shelly. But in this very first scene, immediately after he talks with Patrick here, um, he goes to Shelley, goes back to Shelley and says, uh, Patrick thinks that I'm his dad. I don't know what, what got that in his mind. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that makes the plot line much more bearable because we're not playing yeah. this classic game of misunderstanding, like you said, or miscommunication immediately. We're setting the ball on the track and everyone's on board. Everyone understands each other's circumstances or at yeah. least to perceive circumstances because, when we get to the next scene, this is where the crux of their issue comes into play where Shelley is digging into the notes, into the finances of the payments that Holling's been giving. And it turns out that, yeah, true to Patrick's word, he's been supporting them since he was a baby. And so Shelley says it can't just have been out of duty mm -hmm. because no one would do it for such a long amount of time. But Holling still remains adamant. He's like, no, 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 no. I truly did want to do it out of a sense of goodness for my heart. This is all there is to it. You don't have to read too much. And Shelley responds back saying that, you know, this is actually like a karmic good thing because previously you had a daughter that you wouldn't even acknowledge. 
And it was too late to try to reform her, try to spend quality family time with her. Mm -hmm. But now history is repeating itself and you have time to correct the errors of your past. You can fix that. You don't have to make the same mistake again. It's a really cool reaction from Shelly. She's like, well, Shelly obviously is convinced that Holling is Patrick's father. Right. She's not mad at that. She wants Holling to embrace his family to embrace Patrick and she sees this as you said like as a as a chance for Holling to make things right in the world and in himself. Like Holling definitely struggled with Jackie. This is going to be like a great um growing experience sort of just like a um catharsis uh you know for for Holling to be able to embrace his family like this. Uh, I, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. There's something she says earlier in the scene which I was just curious about if you had any inkling of what it might mean, Charles, or hopefully the listener could shed some light. But as Shelley is going through the accounts and stuff, she tells Holling, it's not the do-re-mi Holling. I just wish you would have told me. Do you know what that, that means, the do-re-mi? I think that's slang for sex, right? I guess. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I did, that did not. Yeah. I, I think what she's trying to say is like, I'm not mad at you for sleeping with another woman. I'm mad at you because you didn't disclose that you, you know, you fathered another child. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Sorry. I'm just looking up do-re-mi slang. Another one says it could be for money, like dough, like dough is like Oh, dough. okay. But that's a good, that's a better reading too. It's like, I'm not mad at you for- For spending all this money. Yeah, yeah. But I like, actually, I like both. If it could mean like, it could be a hip way of like the hanky panky or whatever. That that still works. (laughs) Um, The scene ends, I want to point out the scene ends with um, Shelly saying, what other explanation could there be? Like, you know, you're his father, Um, which I think is cool because it's like, okay, you know, there's obviously something going on here. If I want to believe Holling, there's got to be something else going on. And we do figure out later, uh, spoiler alert, that Holling is not Patrick's father. But before that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was going to agree with you. Yeah, that's a great one because it ends with a shot of Holling not saying anything. He doesn't respond back. Mm -hmm. Well, the next scene is a sleigh ride on a horse. Shelly rented this horse and sleigh from uh, Gil LaFleur. I think uh, we've we've met him a couple times in this season or this series. You know, she's got Patrick with her. She's got Randy. Holling is just um, getting the horse ready. And in this whole scene, Shelly is already planning all the future visits that uh, Patrick will come visit them in Sicily. They'll come to, you know, they'll go to Japan. Um, just all these sort of like family events, like staying close. And we can tell Holling doesn't speak up, but we can see his reaction throughout that he really doesn't like this. Right. One of the neat things that I was taking into account was how Shelly was trying to tell Patrick about how much she liked that old-timey stuff, like string on the newspapers, setting out a picnic. Oh, yeah. Things from like, I'm guessing like from the 1920s or something like that. The family kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like that family type of things. But I I just thought it was really interesting that like, so this was being shot in 1995. Two of them, they had already thought that these ideas were archaic and old-fashioned. Which it was. It was a pretty long distance between them and 1995. But now, in the year 2023, like, <laughs> it's like it's even more like, holy crap, like this is like a really, really old dig. idea. It's like Jurassic but it is Park. Like, yeah. It's timeless for some weird, yeah, weird reason. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, like it never fell out of style. Like we still think that like, oh, it's very kitschy. It's very, very neat to see. <laughs> 
Now, Charles, at the beginning of the episode, you were talking about Casey at the bat, and you were like, I just thought that was something that Chris made up. Well, I was sure when they started singing this like sleigh ride song, um, when the ice worms nest again, I was like, okay, they just, they totally made up uh, this song. But Charles, it's a real, it's a wait, real wait, song. Really? I knew that one had to be real. <laughs> I knew that one had to be real because oh, okay. it's such a cool title. I was like, ice worms? <laughs> Like, uh, and the way that it's phrased, like the song title is, uh, when the ice worms nest again. Yeah. That's like, that's exactly how you would write a song from like the night, you know, the 1800s. So I was like, this is absolutely real. I got to look into it. That's hilarious. Yeah. I was, I, I was so, uh, flabbergasted just being like, oh wait, that is actually a song. That's so cool. Yeah. It is a, it is a favorite song of prospectors and trappers in the Canadian North. And this ballad later became the theme song for the annual gathering of silver miners at Cobalt, Ontario, and fur trappers at uh, the Pass at Manitoba as well. There you go. It's a classic. Uh, what's the term for like those old songs that like are, they're not copyrighted. It's just like these are old, just like, um, it's not hymnal. It's not folklore. Oh, sorry. Traditional. So I have two things to actually note on that. <laughs> okay. uh, number one. The ice worms that are being referenced are not actual ice worms, which I just learned was a real thing. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting hit, getting hit on all manner of the, all manner of things today. But yeah, so it turns out that like there actually are worms that live in ice. Crazy. But the original authors would not have known that existed. Instead, what they used to do back in the day was that they would take pieces of spaghetti. They would draw eyes on them and put them into cocktails <laughs> to scare travelers. So that's called an ice worm cocktail right there. Amazing. The second thing that I do want to note, though, which I think is actually very important for this uh, for this entire episode, is, like you said, When the Ice Worms Nest Again is a traditional song that's very similar to, like, a folk ballad. It's something that's being passed down from the ages and has somehow still, like, paradoxically kept its meaning but also can be expanded upon because it's been passed down for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think that this theme of folklore is heavily prevalent in this episode. Something to take note of whenever we dive more into that in Chris's plotline. Right. Casey at the Bat is very much in that similar area. Um, but let's continue here with Shelley and Holling and Patrick. They are having dinner with Ruth Ann and Walt are their guests. And of course, Randy is there, baby Randy. And Patrick uh, raises a toast for Hauling. Everyone is praising Hauling. Uh, well, I mean, like Walt and Ruth Ann, they're kind of making fun of the situation. Like, Well, here's something yeah, really curious. Yeah. Well, here's something curious. Do you remember what Walt called Hauling? In this scene? Uh, mm -hmm. No, I don't. I don't. What did he say? He calls him the Johnny Appleseed. Oh, yes. Yeah. He does know that. Which is some more folklore. Mm -hmm. There you go. <laughs> so uh, everyone is giving Hauling praise and he ends up, you know, having to reveal the dreadful truth here. Did you guess this, Charles? Like what was happening? No, I had, I had no idea this was going to happen, which I, I think it's great. It's really, it's a good reveal. And I knew it like right as he was about, like, you know, right when it was happening, when Hauling's like, okay, it's time for me to tell you the truth. I was like, oh, but I was surprised that I didn't, think about it earlier in the episode. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, they were cutting, I don't know, like the storytelling is, at least for me, maybe it's the same for you, viewer, or maybe you guessed it already. But I feel like 
it worked. The writing worked on me, you know, as an audience member. <laughs> I did not guess that it was going to happen, and then it happened. So, the real truth here is, um, Halling killed Patrick's father. He shot Patrick's father. There was an argument or some sort of a fight and a struggle for a gun, and uh, at the end of the at the end of the showdown, Halling got up and Patrick's dad was shot. You know, so Halling ran away before he could be charged with murder. And all the money that he sent over the years was because of his guilt, which is, uh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Like I said, I was not expecting that twist. The next scene, Shelly just wants to know. She wants, she's asking Holling, like, uh, you know, wh- why did you kill Patrick's father? Well, the, the name we get later is uh, Philemon, I think is the name of Patrick's father. And Holling tells the story. There was this boulangerie, like a bakery or something, and uh, Philemon forgot to pull the ticket, like the bakery ticket, uh, to be like next in line. And even though Halling arrived after Philemon, Halling was served first because Philemon just didn't have a ticket. And that's what started the fight. Basically, it kind of sounds like self-defense, like Philemon pulled the gun out mm-hmm. and Halling tried to get the gun away and it went off and killed Philemon. So technically hauling, you know, if this was just self-defense, maybe he would, he would be, you know, within the law, but I don't know. This was old timey. I don't even remember where this was. He said probably somewhere in Canada, it sounds like, but hauling also mentions that like everyone in town hated his family anyway, because we learned from past episodes that hauling comes from uh, sort of just like an evil bloodline. It turns out. <laughs> right. And yeah, it kind of sets the stage for the next scene, which is where they're back at the brick and we come full circle and Patrick comes in and he challenges falling to presumably a duel because he like a lays down duel, that uh, yeah. yeah, a little knife right there. I don't know how that's supposed to work out because it's just one knife. I well, like- that's what I, that's what I thought because he stabs the knife into the bar and he says, pick up the poignard or whatever, which is, I guess, knife or, or dagger or something in, in French. Um, and I was like, all right, so Holling's going to pick it up and kill you because you can't. But when we do get shots of Patrick, he is holding a knife too. So he oh. he just pull out. So he pulls out a knife. I guess he he laid one into the bar for Holling to take. Imagine, imagine having to explain that to Barbara. It's like, why is he dead? It's like, oh yeah, like a young man <laughs> came into the bar, challenged him to a duel. It's like it's 1995. <laughs> we like we don't challenge people to duels. We don't do that. <laughs> hey, it's the lawless, uh, lawless Sicily, Alaska. Yeah. All right. And returning back, we see that this is where the townsfolk all kind of chip in with like yeah. They're trying to like fill in the information for like somebody who I, I don't know. It's somebody who just doesn't have all the information because <laughs> each one of them has like their own line, being like, "What's happening now?" Oh, that's actually his perceived son. But in reality, he's been giving him payments all this time. Well, how much were the payments? Well, it's about $25. Well, how much will $25 be at this time? Like stuff like that. And yeah. okay, this is me speaking straight from the gut. I have no information, <laughs> no numbers, no hard numbers to back this up. But they say that Holling in total paid $20,000 from when Patrick was a baby to now. Presumably around like, I don't know, he's like 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And $20,000 is like $40,000 now. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like a whole lot. We're <laughs> like, we're well, child support Are you payment. calculating uh, from the 90s or from, let's see, 20 years before that would be the seven, like 
Oh, at earliest 1970. Still, I didn't even think about that. Let me. It's not let as me crazy as like 1950, now. but yeah, I was curious too. Like, what would? Because you'd have to adjust for inflation, you know, over the years. Um, but right. Still, it's not like a foolproof a, method. And actually, the calculation actually yields. This is at minimum 25 bucks a month for. Or sorry, uh, whatever I don't even remember, but the calculation that they say is actually eighteen thousand, but Maryland ballparks it with twenty uh, k, not adjusted for inflation. Says says Walt. Oh, that is a good point. I did not think about that because from nineteen ninety four to twenty twenty three, it's only about like double the amount, so it's like forty thousand, just a good chunk of money. But like, I don't think that's like enough for child support payment. If you take it from nineteen seventy four to nineteen ninety four. The amount is about 60000 which is like, okay, like, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty, that's a good amount of money. And that's like just the minimum payments, because he always sent, what was it, 25 a month or something? He always sent at least that much, but sometimes he would send like $60, $100, you know, as what Shelly says. So, um, Holling is able to uh, sort of calm everyone down, calm Patrick down. He pours him a beer. And uh, that's the end of the scene. They do get another scene where they kind of really patch things up, but they're able to defuse the situation for now. Right. And that brings us to the final scene where everything's tied up with a neat bow tie right here, where Holling presents Patrick with a Panama hat. It's that same hat that was in the photo that they talked about earlier in the, uh, in the mm-hmm. sleigh scene, where Patrick is saying like, hey, I used to remember seeing your photo with that Panama hat. Now Holling gives it to him. Yeah. And um, I like Holling's... A little thought here. He tells Patrick, it is true, unfortunately true, that I made all those payments out of guilt because of my own guilt. I'll admit that. But basically he's like, I'm I'm happy with the way it all turned out. Like that's in the end, like he's proud of Patrick. He's happy that he was able to, um, in some small part, uh, ensure that Patrick got a good life. And this is also Holling saying like, congratulations, Patrick. Like, you're doing great. You're young. You're about to like go to Japan with this great job. Uh, you'll go places. Like this is going to be good. And Holling is uh, also, I think, in this in this scene, sort of like stepping into the role of like the the mon oncle. You know, like uh, he's really becoming the uncle figure, which is nice. Right, and that ties it all up with acceptance, where Holling accepts it. He accepts both the guilt uh-huh. that he was holding, and Patrick is also accepting. Like, all right, like now I know what the truth is. They bury the hatchet, they hug it out, and au revoir, um, Patrick leaves. Now, we'll go back to the beginning of the episode and pick up our final plot line for us to talk about uh, what we've kind of been insinuating from the opening soundbite of the the podcast here. Chris is uh, trying to get a master's degree. It it opens with him uh, in K-Bear, blending together some juice, He's got a recipe here. They should put this in the uh, Northern Exposure cookbook. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if we're getting like, uh, if we're like inter- cutting into the scene halfway through the preparation of this drink, or if it's just as simple as he's just blending together um, 16 ounces of organic apple juice and one teaspoon of biloba leaf extract, which I don't know if you've heard of that. I had to look it up. It's ginkgo, which I've definitely heard of ginkgo before. Mm. This is his, um, his smart drink recipe. I think it's really interesting that apples are featured so prominently in this episode. You have yeah, apples. Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, we have Sorry, Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. And at the end, whenever um, I, I want to say it's not the first, Schuster, yeah, like the, the the other professor. Yeah, the other professor 
he's eating an apple as well. Uh-huh. And apples are yeah. traditionally symbolized as like, you know, an academic thing. That's why you give like an apple to your For teacher sure. or something like that. Yeah. So I just thought it was a really interesting thing to see. But yeah, like you said, there's two professors that are coming up later today from the U of A in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. They're going to be doing a, uh, it's like pretty much like, is he defending his dissertation right here? Yeah, he's doing the dissertation. Um, wait, is that what it's called? Or is that what you, I can't even remember. Is that what it's called when you uh, defend your thesis? It's the, or it's thesis defense. Is that the same thing as dissertation? Obviously none of us went to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to do like an honors thesis in, uh, but I was an undergrad. It was like sort of like a thesis defense. I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, he he wrote a dissert. He says wrote a dissertation of Casey at the bat, and I was confused. Do you say dissertation of or dissertation on? I don't know the proper way, but I feel like uh, in this episode, or at least in this scene, he says dissertation of Casey at the bat, an anti-filiopietistic metaphor for America's role in post-Cold War geopolitics. Very Chris thing to think about and talk about. I had never heard that word. I, I looked at the definition, but do you know, Charles, the meaning of filiopietistic? No, I had no idea. I had to look that up as well. It means, yeah, the definition of or relating to an often excessive veneration of ancestors or tradition. So upholding the old ways. Um, his dissertation is maybe focusing on uh, anti-filio, uh, you know, against the, all that. So... Is he going to get a master's degree? You know, that's that's what this episode, that's what this plot line is. He's like, he's going to try for it, see what happens. Yeah, and that's actually like the word of the day. Trying to see if you can stay with tradition or if you want to be like, quote unquote, deconstructionist, which is like. Right. Uh, maybe I'm like, I'm hanging around like different communities, but like deconstruction is like, it's such a meme. It's such a, like, no one has any idea what this word means. They only use it whenever they're trying to, yeah. they're watching something that they traditionally don't like of a genre and try to, like, de- defend their like of it. So they're like, it's a deconstruction of this. Yes. That's why it's good. <laughs> it's like, no one knows what this word means. It's those buzzwords, like, uh, and it almost sounds a little um, pretentious feeling, like words like, uh, when you, when anytime I ever say society, I feel like... like <laughs> <laughs> like I just can't even say it in any context or I feel pretentious. So deconstruction. Yeah. I mean, there are great words for these ideas, but if I ever say them, I'm like, can I listen to myself sound like AM radio or something? <laughs> I, yeah. I tune out as soon as I hear that word and I feel bad because they might be you yeah. know, making a legitimate point. But like to me, if I, if I hear that, I'm like, I don't, and like, it's like a bellwether for me. Right. <laughs> That's how I determine if I want to pay attention or not. But uh, yeah, that sets the scene right here for Chris. And now the professors are coming one at a time. And the first one to arrive is Professor Martin, the quote-unquote deconstructionist himself. Yeah, Professor Aaron Martin from the literature department at U of A. He seems to be very impressed with Chris's thesis, his writing, just the way Chris thinks. Um, And they're still waiting on the other professor. We get the name Schuster. And pretty immediately, just from Aaron's shift in tone and from what he says, he's basically like, Schuster does not like um, the idea that you, Chris, would get a degree by these unusual means. Like, you know, I don't, I, you know, obviously I don't believe uh, Chris, like, went to college. He, like, did his, um, 
these equivalency exams, he said, and submitted a thesis. But, you know, these are uh, non-traditional routes for acquiring a master's degree. Right. And even the thing that he's writing about is not necessarily up to tradition. It's something that you have to think really out of the box for and trying to Mm -hmm. apply meaning where meaning might not be found. Uh, Professor Martin is, yeah, he's a good foil for what's about to happen down here. And for what it's worth, I do like how Professor Martin is approaching this because he's saying that he doesn't want to poison the well. He's saying like, I I, I don't want to spread any bad will toward my colleague. I'll just say that he disagrees with your method. And, you know, once he arrives, you know, who boy, you're going to have to talk to him. (laughs) But I'll let you see for yourself. So, yeah, the next scene is Chris meets uh, Dick Schuster, Professor Schuster. And uh, he's like, Chris is leaving K-Bear. They have this walk and talk all down the street. I was surprised to see a telephone booth in Sicily, like right outside K-Bear. Did you catch that? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I don't think I'd seen one. Maybe I'd seen one before, but someone, like, I don't, yeah, someone was actually in it, like on the phone. Anyway, it, this might not be the first time we've seen one, but a little surprising. Schuster um, is making his, you know, point here in this scene straight up. Tells Chris that he's not going to give him a degree uh, in, you know, so, so many words. He's not impressed in Chris's perspective. Uh, just He just he thinks Chris is just using Casey at the bat as a metaphor for something that there's no connection. Like, it's just completely, the idea is that it's like Chris is trying to bend Casey at the bat towards his own, as an, as like an expression of his own ideas about geopolitics, his own obsession with these ideas. And Schuster simply believes that there's no connection. You're trying to ascribe meaning where there's not. Right. So there's three things that I want to talk about in this scene. Number one, I really like this character in that when he's first described, you would think of him as very, uh, you know, like a grump. You would think Mm -hmm. that he's bent out of shape and that he's going to be immediately grumpy and unfavorable toward Chris. Whereas, if anything, he's quite professional, and the way that he talks to Chris is still with respect. He's polite. So he's like, yeah, let's go get that cup of coffee. You know, do, do you know any places that are great for hunting? And he's upfront about his intentions. So I yeah. actually really like the way that he approached this character, and I think that the actor is, he's doing a fine job of delivering these lines. Uh, number two, we never actually really talked about Casey at the Bat, and I wanted to talk about it very quickly from its Wikipedia okay. page. So Casey at the Bat, A Ballad of the Republic, sung in the year 1888, is a mock heroic poem written in 1888 by Ernest Thayer. It was first published anonymously in the San Francisco Examiner, then called the Daily Examiner, under the pen name Finn, based on Thayer's college nickname Finney. And it's about a dramatic narrative of a baseball game. And the poem was later popularized by DeWolf Hopper in many vaudeville performances. It has become one of the best-known poems in American literature. Yeah, and um, I think it's pretty cool on this Wikipedia page that there's a mention of Northern Exposure at the bottom. But there's a I lot know. of yeah, there's a lot of really interesting. I mean, you can read the poem on Wikipedia. I'm sure you can find it online as well. You could hear that recitation, that recording by DeWolf Hopper, and then there's a lot of just interesting. Like this is obviously uh, such a uh, a poem with such a, a huge cultural impact. It has definitely been studied before too, like people, archivists and historians, and well, you know everything. And and many um, 
I even thought it was cool, like TV, film, video games have references to Casey at the Bat. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was probably just like hugely popular at the time it came out and then just, you know, was continually just, uh, you know, it, it lived on through just appreciation of the past. I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I also think it's a really good poem as well. I think there are merits, you know, people can talk about how great of a poem it is, but I almost feel like the popularity of this is uh, maybe largely because of historical value and just like sort of the things we're talking about, like tradition as well, you know? Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, there is like this really great snippet that's written on the Wikipedia article that I like to read. It's from Martin Gardner from American Heritage. And he says, no one imagines that Casey is great in the sense that the poetry of Shakespeare or Dante is great. A comic ballad obviously must be judged by different standards. One doesn't criticize a slice of superb apple pie because it fails to taste like crepe Suzette. There was only trying to write a comic ballad with clanking rhymes and a vigorous beat that could be read quickly, understood at once, and laughed at by any newspaper reader who knew baseball. Somehow, in harmony with the curious laws of humor and popular taste, he managed to produce the nation's best-known piece of comic verse, a ballad that began a native legend as colorful and permanent as that of Johnny Appleseed or Paul Bunyan. I think it's such an interesting idea of what Chris is trying to do in his dissertation because he's taking something that's inherently kind of silly. It, it, you might not ascribe much meaning behind it other than a humorous telling of someone at a baseball game. And he's trying to take this all and applying it to something that's very much serious, mm -hmm. uh, especially at the time of 1995. But yeah, I, I think that's one, very noble, and two, just something to really chew on. Like, I would love to yeah. read this. I think it's such an interesting yeah, exactly. one. And also, for me, I think that Casey and the Bat can be read in multiple ways. Probably the most popular one is like hubris. And saying like, mm -hmm. you know, you could have done it if you just swung the first two times, but because you thought you had it in the bag, you waited to the third shot and then you, you struck out. So I'm trying to teach you about humility and stuff like that. But in a way... I think that Casey in the bat kind of means acceptance because baseball is a very binary sport. You either hit the ball or you don't. And when it comes to the third hit, he simply doesn't hit it. Mm -hmm. And he has to come to acceptance with that. And everyone does in the whole crowd. They have to go home unhappy in Mudville. So I think there's something to be dug here. I think there's something to be analyzed about the idea that like sometimes you will prove successful and other times, even though you thought you had it, you don't. And that's just the way the chips fell down. Yeah, it's almost like, a, I like that you point out sort of the cockiness in Casey. Like he ignores the first two swings or the first two pitches. And because he's just like, everyone's waiting for him to get up to bat because they know he's going to fucking crush it. You know, they, they just, he's, he's proven. But uh, it's true. I mean, when, when it comes down to it, so many things can happen. It's almost like, I mean, it's not, but it's almost like 50-50. It's like, well, do you hit it or not? Is it, you know, like you said, binary, zero or one? Like, does it connect or no? And sometimes it doesn't. I'm sorry. I know that was a really long-winded way of describing the second thing, but I did say there was three things that I liked about this. And the mm -hmm. third is the dialogue itself in this scene. And it's almost mm -hmm. as if the screenwriter knew. He was like, I'm tackling something that's very heady, something very intellectual. So I want all of the scenes that are featuring Chris to have this 
weight to them in their dialogue. I mean, just listen to what's happening here between Chris and the professor. Excuse me? Deconstruction. Aaron's Basilica is holy seed. It's why he's gaga over your Casey at the bat analysis and why I, as you say, have reservations. That's such good writing. And why, as you say, have reservations is that parenthetical expression right there that they don't get the flex that much on Northern Exposure. It's very sorkin <laughs> Yeah, they talk. I love the way they're talking in this episode. And it's like, it seems very, um, what's the word, like erudite or academic, you know, obviously. But um, but it's not too hard to follow. Like, you definitely get what's happening because the actors are so good. Like, the writing is clear and concise. And it's just, it's, it's popping off real good. Um, so the next scene is, I guess, the beginning of this dissertation, this thesis defense. Um, it starts with Eugene kind of we're close up on Eugene. He's like up on a ladder painting something in the Sicily chapel and, um, the professors are there and Chris is there. Uh, they're sitting at this long table in the chapel. Eugene is just there by circumstance. Um, and they start, they start testing Chris. I think, um, I don't remember if it was Aaron or, uh, Schuster, who starts off with asking Chris to define uh, the objective correlative. Right. Oh, right before I, I want to plug this in because oh, yeah. that was it was very coincidental for me. So uh, they try to tell Chris to say like, "Okay, you obviously have free range to answer these questions, but remember that brevity is the sole wit." Oh, and yeah. then Professor Martin says, "As it is the sole of lingerie," and then Professor Schuster shoots him a look, and he has to defend himself and say. You know, Dorothy Parker. <laughs> Dorothy Parker is someone I knew and whom I've had their Wikipedia page open on for quite some time. Uh, Dorothy Parker, for those of you who don't know, was one of those like giants in the early heydays of the 1900s. She was an American poet, writer, critic, and satirist based in New York. And what she was known for is being one of the founding members of the Algonquin Roundtable, which was like this organization of heady individuals that were kind of dominating the intellectual scene in the 1900s, they were comprised of, you know, like the top smart Alex of their time. And Dorothy Parker was one of the founding members. And the way that she achieved a lot of her fame was actually on this line uh, that she used in charades that they used to play a lot. And the line is, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So it's a, a very, pun. yeah, it's a good <laughs> pun. It's a very witty. So you can, you know, you can immediately tell it's like, oh, okay, that's why she's achieved fame right there. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Though good. it is very funny in that Dorothy Parker was very critical of the group. And especially as she got older in life, she is quoted as saying, these were no giants. Think who was writing in those days. Lardner, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Hemingway. Those were the real giants. The round table was just a lot of people telling jokes and telling each other how good they were. Just a bunch of loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting for a chance to spring them. There was no truth in anything they said. It was a terrible day of the wisecrack, so there didn't have to be any truth. <laughs> I think that's such a humorous, such a good dagger into it. <laughs> Very cool. But yeah, uh, objective correlative. Lee, yeah. what you got for that? So Chris uh, responds to define it as a specific image that is evoked by writing. Uh, for example, because um, he's, he's supposed to give an example, 
So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. William Carlos Williams. That's a famous uh, classic poem. So simple, but so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's that, that poem is definitely conjuring an image in your mind, um, but also like it's got, you know, it can have so much emotion as well. Right. And it's that particular use of symbols that they're really, really focusing on. Uh, I did look into it because I thought it was really interesting. And yeah, the pure definition of objective correlative is the artistic and literary technique of representing or evoking a particular emotion by means of symbols that objectify that emotion and are associated with it. So when Chris says that it's known by T.S. Eliot, that is true. I had to look into this and I'm, I'm going to directly quote it, but it says that T.S. Eliot used this phrase to describe a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion that the poet feels and hopes to evoke in the reader. So basically, what he's saying is that there must be a positive connection between the emotion the poet is trying to express and the object, image, or situation in the poem that helps to convey that emotion to the reader. So to break it down even more further is that there needs to be like a symbol or a stand-in that represents the larger thesis at play. That's very mm -hmm. important for what's happening here for Casey at the bat and, well, what happens at the end. Yeah, I guess in Schuster's mind, he wants to see, like, he believes that the artist has an intention with their imagery and what what emotion they're trying to evoke. And uh, so, that, so that was actually, that was Schuster's question to um, his, his test for Chris. Now, Aaron... Um, wants Chris to, quote, find a connection between Melville's duality of evil, how it might predict the moral ambiguities of 20th century colonialism. And Schuster at this practically rolls his eyes, but Chris goes with it and basically brings in like Moby Dick, um, you know, who's the real evil here? Like, is it the giant whale or is it uh, just this obsession that um, Ishmael has? Uh, trying to hunt down this whale. Or sorry, it was Captain Ahab, I believe. I can't remember. And he extrapolates this to sort of the idea of the benevolent imperialist. Um, and like, I guess the example was soldiers in the Vietnam War having to burn down a village in order to save the village. Right. This is definitely things, like even nowadays, especially nowadays, that <laughs> academics just love to argue about. Uh, we're not going to get into it, obviously, but it's, it's still as true as it was in 1995. And the reason for me, at least why she still rolls his eyes, is because I think this is a very easy question. <laughs> it's just like, it's so, it sets it up. It, it's one of those questions that you oh, it's, ask. Oh, it's leading you to the answer. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Like yeah, question, it's leading yeah, you to the answer. Through. And like anyone worth their snuff uh, on these particular issues with like, you could nail this Connect with so many dots, examples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're, you're giving them the slam dunk, the alley-oop. <laughs> yeah. You're letting him sound smart, I guess. Um, that's the end of that scene. The next scene is sort of a big one at Maurice's where they're all having a nice dinner. It's the professors and Chris and Maurice has them over as guests. They're all having a little bit to drink and Maurice invites them into the living room where they start to talk about deconstruction. And I have some of these quotes written down. It's Aaron that says, it is only when you remove the author as the final arbiter that all the suppressed meanings are allowed to proliferate. Like the idea here that they're arguing is, um, I guess Schuster really like wants um, 
a singular interpretation or just like a more focused analysis rather than like opening up the floodgates to, you know, it can mean anything. Like there's no, don't, I don't care what the author's intention was. Like, what does it mean to you? And, and Schuster strikes back saying, you know, if you take it your way, you know, misinterpretation is no longer a literary crime. And I was like, wait, really crime? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, what else happens in this scene? Chris says, the world's come to depend on Uncle Sam to solve all its problems, just like the fans in Mudville expect Casey to knock it out of the park every time he steps up to the plate. And like, this just gets the professors like really, they're sort of like egging each other on, they're going at it. And it's almost really hilarious to me just seeing Chris's reaction because he's sitting down in a chair, just kind of looking back and forth between them like, huh, okay, cool. He's like, this is happening, I guess. Um, Some other quotes I have here uh, must be Schuster. He says, throw out Jane Austen. All she did is validate imperialism. Who needs Shakespeare, an elitist punster at best? And all the while, we're shamelessly pandering to the loudest of the disenfranchised. It's college through a boombox. I think Schuster's point here is that uh, deconstruction is like sort of like debasing the genius of the artist. It's like stripping the art from the artist's true intention. He wants to be more reverent for the creator of the art and also appreciate what their meaning was. Like what was their idea in creating this art? Um, Which is like definitely something we should be thinking about and analyzing. But I also see the other side. It's like what, what else can you glean from the meaning of this uh, of this work of art by, you know, not concerning yourself with the artist, just like seeing it as uh, an independent piece of work. Like, what does it mean to you? Right, exactly. And it's a very interesting one to think about. And like I said before, it's still plaguing the problems of academics now. And I, I don't want to, you know, and obviously we're not going to like dig deep into it. This, this is not what the podcast is about. This is not what we're, what we're about, but I do think that there's also something to note in Professor Schuster's mind where he's saying that, like, there is something to uphold in tradition and these people that we used to look to. And now you're throwing this all out and you're trying to say, that like, oh, no, no, there's like other things to think about right here. But uh, Schuster is much more ingrained in that old style of how things should be done. And mm-hmm. I think you can draw a little bit of a parallel to that in like folk stories. And mm-hmm. how those are, um, there's one way to look at them and how it's always been looked at for generations at a time. Let's use like Paul yeah. Bunyan. But then like, in a way, like we know that Paul Bunyan's not real. We know that like, he wasn't like, he didn't have like a 50 foot blue ox. Obviously there must be some meaning behind it. You have to look over it. And like, as the stories get passed down, their meaning slightly shift as all stories do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's just a really great back and forth between these two that culminates into an actual fist fight and Maurice <laughs> has to separate them and says, it's just literature. It's just literature for goodness sake. It's a great way to end that scene. Cause uh, oftentimes <laughs> we get lost in these jungles of argument yeah. between it, it's almost like the process itself that we're arguing about. We're not even arguing about the results. It's just a way yeah. that we're thinking <laughs> and it gets muddled and it gets very hairy and dicey. Very quickly. I have to see these arguments like all the time. And I, yeah. for me, uh, I guess it's because I'm older now. I just want to like take a step back and not, not like, worry too much just, about that. Yeah. Guys, it's just literature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's just Don't like. Get bent out of shape. 
Right. Yeah, because in the end, it's like almost like people aren't necessarily defending the art. It's just they're defending their own uh, worldviews of how they should approach their own like, yeah, their own point of view, their own like smartness. Like they're just trying to win the argument. Right. And like you're never going to really convince like all of the people if you get too lost in this very narrow corridor. And it brings us to a dream sequence that we don't see too often. It's with Mm -hmm. Chris. He's in wartime. He's getting shellacked by artillery. He's with his mates, these uh, giants of not just Mm -hmm. a literature community, but from just individuals all throughout the Western canon. Uh, You have like Van Gogh Mm -hmm. there. You have, Mm -hmm. I want to say Beethoven's there as well. Beethoven, Edgar Allan Poe, who is introduced and then quickly shot. He dies. (laughs) Um, Shakespeare is there and they call him Shakes. I think that's funny. And we learn that uh, Emerson, Fuller, and Thoreau have already been killed. So they're gone. And Shakespeare runs out into the battle, into the fray, and immediately gets shot and dies. And there's like a, some literary jokes here. He, as he's dying, he says, thus am I slain, which I figured was like a Shakespeare quote, but I actually couldn't find it. I think it's probably Romeo and Juliet, but, um, I don't know if it's, I mean, I, I, I don't have the plays in front of me. I just Googled it, but his final dying words are, tis a far, far better thing I do. And Chris has to, uh, correct him. He says, Shakes, that's Dickens. It's not like the, you didn't write that <laughs> from a, a tale of two cities. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hell out there. Uh, all these great artists are pinned down by the snipers. They're not going to be able to fight it out. Um, Chris, you know, I guess takes up his rifle and, uh, crawls down there. He, he gets up and aims his gun and he looks out and he's looking directly at himself. It's kind of a cheesy effect. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I could be wrong. But it definitely feels this way. It feels like they just took the image and flipped it, like you know, mm. flip it on its vertical axis or whatever. So you know, Chris is looking to the left, and then it cuts to a shot of him looking to the right, like as if he's looking at himself. I think the I think the effect sells. Like I understand Chris is just looking down the gun and he sees himself, like he's aiming, he's he's uh, trying to go at war with himself in a word, you know. But it's just kind of a cheesy. I thought it was a little cheesy. The effect was cheesy or like the scene itself was cheesy? The effect. The effect. Like, oh, okay. I, I don't know. It's just like a simple, I don't, I'm pretty sure that's what they did. I think they just did a flip on the image. I don't think they like did two different shots. Oh, I okay. could be wrong though. Uh, I can see the scene being cheesy, but I, I think it gets the point across <laughs> no, in yeah, that yeah, like yeah. Chris is warring against himself and like what is the effect that he is having on these two warring factions of like traditionalists mm-hmm. and trying to deconstruct, stuff like that. Well, the next scene we get, I don't know if it's a commercial break or, or whatever. I mean, like Chris wakes up from this dream and then the next scene is uh, Chris is playing Ray Charles on K-Bear and the song is What I Say. And um, he kind of recites those lyrics and is basically like, he's asking the listener of K-Bear, like, what am I supposed to do at this point? Um, he relates that, you know, if you try to analyze something too much, you grind it into dust. I mean, what's the point of asking Ray Charles what he meant when he said, going to take you back to Arkansas? Doesn't art speak for itself? Like, do we even, like, what's the meaning? Do we even need to know the meaning of that? In the end, it just makes me want to dance. Like, that's what the art is telling me. Yeah, and I think that's like a really curious quote by him where he says, we're looking for people who like to think. That must be like the byline, like the tag 
that the university has, the U of A in Anchorage. Uh-huh. And I think it's so funny because like the ideas that they're throwing out are very high level ones, especially on the language that they're using, the rhetoric that they choose. Yet that line, we're looking for people who like to think it's almost deceiving in a way. Cause it just seems like any, any hillbilly with a good grasp should be applying into this. But mm-hmm. what Chris was trying to say is like, I don't think you know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. He's basically like, what, what did I get myself into? I saw like the back of a matchbook or something. I think that's what he said. And he read that quote, uh, looking for people who like to think. And now he's gotten himself into this quandary. Yeah. And the shot ends with him looking at a lava lamp that is uh, taking up our focus. What do you think that lava lamp means? Like, why do you think they ended on that shot? It's a good question. I just thought it like looked cool and curious, but it is it is something that we should focus on because there are there's at least one other lava lamp in this episode. There's I feel like kind of like apples, lava lamps may appear more than once. The other one I'm thinking of is um I want to say it's in the scene where Patrick challenges Holling to a knife duel. There's a lava lamp in the brick like behind the bar or something. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that one? No, I didn't notice that one. It's a different color. This one's purple and in, in K-Bear and then the one in uh the brick is red and there may be more. I don't have a good answer for what that could mean, but obviously the set dressers, you know, the production designer, uh, they made those choices. It's like, oh yeah, well, didn't we have a lava lamp in that other scene? It's like, yeah, let's do another one in this one. You know, I don't know. Do you have yeah, an idea? I don't really have a great idea either. I think that just from the imagery itself on a lava lamp, you just have these things that are floating around. So the idea that you're lost in this space that's kind of mm-hmm. applicable to a lava lamp. So I thought like just on face value, I could see that. I don't really know the properties of a lava lamp. I highly mm-hmm. doubt that's actually a lava itself. I'm probably 100% yeah. correct on that. <laughs> but it's almost as if the contents of the lamp, like, uh, I mean, they they don't, but it feels like they ignore physics. Like they, don't, they ignore the, the laws. They're kind of just like, uh, they're listless kind of floating around. Mm. And definitely, I could, I could say I get the sense of, Chris looking at that lava lamp, it feels like he's floating in this abyss and doesn't know what to do. Mm, okay. All right. Well, we're getting close to the end of this plot line. Uh, so Chris has got to make up his mind. The next scene we see is uh, Eugene walking into the chapel where the professors are waiting. They're waiting for Chris. I think they're kind of just like, you think you would have forgotten? No, there's no way. And Eugene comes in and says, Hey, Chris was very sorry. He apologizes, but he wants you guys to meet him at Minifield Field, which I also thought was just like, it's not a great name for a baseball field. It doesn't really <laughs> roll off the top. Minifield Field, it's kind of hard to say. Um, very short scene. They go out to this baseball diamond, uh, which is all snow. It's I think it's even snowing in the scene, like snow is falling. Chris is out there with the baseball bat. And he gives the bat to Aaron. And then he asks Schuster to be the catcher, but Schuster declines. So Eugene will have to take his place. And Chris is going to be the pitcher here. And they start sort of reenacting the poem without really realizing it at first. Chris is just reciting parts of Casey at the bat as he is pitching, uh, throwing balls to Aaron. And, uh, Aaron is like striking out like in the the moments in the poem when it's appropriate. I'll just read one of the stanzas. What is it? Uh, Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheated sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one. The umpire said. Wide by a mile. You know, as this is going on, it's involving these professors. 
Um, in this game, obviously, the two professors themselves are battling each other. And through this reenactment, Schuster, in a way, gets to uh, gloat at Aaron's, um, you know, failures with his strikes. And um, by the end of it, you know, it plays out just as the poem does. Uh, it's kind of cool. There's like a slow motion shot as we're reading that that final, uh, the, the third strike. Uh, and now, now the, the pitcher, pitcher holds, holds the, the ball, ball and now, now he lets, lets it go. go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. You're out of there! And we see Aaron is swinging the bat in slow motion and he misses the ball. He, you know, the air is shattered by his blow. And Schuster seems to be like, you know, at first he was like confused, but the gears like begin spinning. Schuster's like really impressed with this. And I guess happy to see uh, Aaron strike out. But um, Chris points out, you know, Casey at the bat, the poem, it's about that feeling that you have in your gut. And really the final stanza of the poem, like we hear him as he's reciting it. It really is like about that feeling of, of the tragedy of a loss, like going home sad. All of Mudville will go home sad uh, because they lost the game. Yeah. I think this is such a great scene on multiple levels, but one, let's talk about the scenery itself, which is beautiful. Maybe it's because we mm. live in the dirty South and there's like nothing <laughs> resembling this whatsoever. But on this one, there's snow falling down. There's a, uh, you can see like the beautiful mountains and the trees that are in the distance and mm -hmm. the snow continues to pile down on the scene as Chris vigorously throws the ball towards the professors. The professors valiantly try to swing but fell. And the snow just keeps piling down as Chris keeps reciting the poem. And it gets more and more dramatic in this manner. I, I just think it's great. I think it's a great scenery. Great way for us to imagine this. And, you know, at the end where Chris says, like, that feeling that's in your gut, that's what Casey at the bat is about. I think it's a really interesting read on what they're trying to say. So essentially, for me, I think that Chris is kind of returning back to that authorial intent in a way. And that he's saying, like, let's forget all the gibberish. Let's forget about the process and diving deep into where we think things could go. Let's return back to the subject matter at hand, which is that, like, art is supposed to be applicable to our lives. It's not meant to be intellectual exercise. And so... When I'm dragging you out here and we're actually physically living through the moment and you feel that in your stomach, you feel that in your gut, that's what art is about. It's a way for you to relate to that feeling where you can put words into feelings that you never thought that you could. And that is ultimately what I'm trying to express. That doesn't mean that like what I think of this in relation to post-Cold War Soviets is incorrect. <laughs> I think that we can take this and derive meaning out of it. It's just that let's not, let's not lose focus of what the original poem was expressing. Yeah. I think it's a very, I think it's a very good ending. Obviously Chris gets his masters in comparative lit, uh, but it's not because he accepted the praise of uh, professor Martin, you know, Aaron, and it wasn't because he like succumbed to the traditionalist ideas of professor Schuster but he kind of like threw that all out and almost like, I wouldn't say necessarily like abandoning the path of analysis, but like going with the gut feeling. And like you said, sort of appreciating what this art means in this context, like in this real context. And I mean, like, I don't know, was it a, do, do you feel bad that did he give up? Like, does it feel like he gave up on his 
his idea of like geo geopoliticism, or do you think that's somehow preserved? I think it's or does somewhat, he like does he change his point of view? He's like, oh, it's not about geopolitics. Geopolitics, yeah, geopolitics. I think that he does preserve it, and I think it's important to note that the title of this episode is called "The Graduate." Obviously, it can be a reference to the film, but. Mm-hmm. In another way of thinking, uh, when you graduate, you're handed a diploma. You're handed something that recognizes your ability. And so Chris accepts at the end that like it is a recognition and an acceptance by those professors of his ability. That means his thoughts have weight behind them and that his ideas are worthy of – that his ideas are worthy of recognition. That's why I think that he doesn't necessarily throw it out. I think that they're saying that like – Chris understands the fundamentals of how to approach this. And therefore, Mm -hmm. whether or not it was about post-Soviet Cold War, it it could be about anything as long as you can understand of like where you should approach it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like you said, like in the end, that's like the graduate. It's like about this diploma. It's not necessarily about this idea that Chris has to like, you know, stick his guns to. Like the professors like won't back down. It's more about... Uh, this achievement of uh, education, of knowledge, like, you know, Chris has reached this point, where it's not, you know, he doesn't have to die on this hill of uh, geopolitics, you know, but it's more about understanding of art. And I mean, comparative lit, like, you know, understanding this literature, comparing it, what is it? uh, What does it mean to us? How should we analyze it? And I think they definitely... They definitely exhausted a lot of different ways of approaching art in this episode and in their conversations, Chris and the professors, you know, I think they were all, uh, they're all very academic and I, I, I'm, I'm glad that Chris, Chris got his degree, his master's. Yeah. I would have been very disappointed had the episode ended with him (laughs) not receiving (laughs) his master's from the U of A. Which is like something that could have happened. Like, you know, like this, there's some pretty <laughs> depressing endings or pretty, you know, there's some endings that kind of, as we talked about in the beginning, kind of throw you for a loop. They're kind of reveals and surprises, you know? So this was a um, pretty gratifying ending. And it felt uh, like a great culmination and synthesis of all the ideas that they were laying out in the episode. I liked it. Right. Very Northern exposure Very good episode. All right, Charles, it's that point in our podcast now where we're going to bring on a guest. And for this episode, we have a live guest with us in another time zone from London. We've got Johnny Awesome, a comedian extraordinaire and fan of Northern Exposure. Johnny, uh, how's it going? It's going very well. Couldn't really be more excited about coming on this (laughs) podcast, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very happy to have you. Uh, before we talk about Northern Exposure, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I live in London and I'm a musical comedian. So when I go on stage, I tend to take a guitar on and I do songs or sometimes I have tracks that I've made and I rap and things like that. But I'm quite a silly, upbeat, very interactive comedian. I like the word interactive because I hate it when people say audience participation because it just <laughs> it kind of conjures up something that is not kind of how I want to right. make people feel. I'd rather sort of say, hey, what can, you know, what can this guy do? And then like create some magic rather than audience participation, which makes you sort of cringe and think, oh God, I've got to do something or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I've been doing it since 2011. I think my kind of career highlights so far would be 
I was on a show over here called Britain's Got Talent. I think you have that in America anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Different That's version. Um, <laughs> still Simon Cowell though, I guess. I think it's, he's probably yeah. on that as well. Uh, so yeah, I did that over here and that, that was really good for my career because obviously lots of people see it. So off the back of that, I've done all sorts of different things. Last year, I went on tour with a guy who is a really big stand-up over here called Jason Manford and he put me in arenas with him. So that was insane. Wow, it was like nice. a childhood dream. Yeah, I mean, I really felt like I kind of got to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was to do that kind of Freddie Mercury thing of coming out and playing <laughs> to a huge, huge crowd. That's and awesome. yeah, all sorts. Um, just did a cruise. Uh, I was going to mention that actually, because when I was on my cruise, I took something on my laptop that I downloaded to watch because I wasn't quite sure how it would be with like internet and the Wi-Fi and things. And I downloaded this film that we have uh, on iPlayer over here, which is like the BBC thing that you can use to download stuff. And it was called 47 Meters Down Uncaged. Have either of you seen that film? No, I'm gonna, 47 Meters Down Uncaged. Basically Jaws, but on a, a very small budget. But here's the thing, guys. I'm sat watching it on a ship on the sea, uh-huh. and who should who should just turn up and come on? But Chris in the morning, John Corbin. And I, I absolutely, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa! So I was really excited about that because I thought I could tell you two about it. Um, That's great. Sorry, how scary would you say that movie is? It had its moments. I mean, you've got to remember, I was on a ship while I was watching yeah. it. It was kind of going up and down. So I kind of had that 4D experience happening. Right. The reason I was asking is because uh, Charles doesn't like scary movies that much, though we watch a lot of movies that feature the cast of Northern Exposure, like, you know, just in other things. But I'd never heard of that one. Yeah, but like, uh, I, I think I'll be fine because yeah. it's called 47 Meters. And we're in America, so like that doesn't exist over here. That that entire thing is fantasy. It's fantasy to Charles. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I sort of don't like it if I see someone from Northern Exposure in something else. I've got this mm-hmm. funny thing about it where it it kind of spoils the the realness and the magic of it a little bit. So when when he was in it, I kind of liked it, but there was another part of me that sort of thought, Ah, oh, Chris, what are you doing here? Haven't you what got a show to do? This? Yeah. You know, do you need to get back to the radio? Maurice is going to be really cross, Chris. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so there was a little bit of me yeah. like that. I mean, I actually think that's part of the charm for me. Is you, yeah. you perhaps, I don't know, maybe being in America, you're maybe you're just more aware of the stuff that people done that the people in it have done since. But for mm-hmm. me, I've not seen that many people from that show in other things after Northern Exposure. So it just makes it feel all the more real to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you're the way you came to Northern Exposure. Like an American show uh, across the pond, it kind of feels like a little more fan, like more like Charles was saying, it's more of a fantasy, more fiction, but uh, it's like it's its own world. Yeah, but that's something I guess I'd love to ask you about. Is how did you come to Northern Exposure? What's your history with it? Well, I don't think I've ever revealed this before, but <laughs> when I was growing up and it was first on TV, I had this little tiny TV in my room, and when I used to go to bed, and I was supposed to be going to sleep because I was got school the next day, I worked out that I could turn it on really quietly and Mm. go really close to it and watch stuff. And my parents didn't know that I was doing that. And one of the shows that always just seemed to come on when I did that was Northern Exposure. So it probably was on in the UK back then about like half 10 a night or something or 11 or something like that when I was supposed to have gone to bed and gone to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it from the off. And I had a huge gap from it. I watched it back then when it was on TV and I would watch it whenever I 
I was doing a sneaky bit of TV watching and, and it happened to be airing. And then years and years later, I was talking to my wife about it. She'd never heard of it. She hadn't, didn't really know what I was talking about. And so we bought the first season off Amazon on DVD just to try it and like watch it again. And I was, I was sure I would like it, but I just thought, oh, I hope I haven't, like, I haven't misremembered it. Mm -hmm. And then we both absolutely loved it. So then we bought the box sets. We've got like the big DVD box set that's got like the moose type nice. finish to it. It's got like a kind of a velvety finish. It's like a velvet bag or something or a carrying no, it's case? Like a, it's like a box, but it's got, okay. it's got like a kind of a finish on it. It's almost like suede. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. And then we just watched that show bit by bit in order, obviously, from start to finish. And we had a move in the middle of it where we moved house and it it, it kind of got misplaced for a little bit, whatever. <laughs> but we always stuck with it. And I think when I emailed you it was around about the time that we finished watching the whole thing, like every mm -hmm. single one. Have you finished it by the way? I mean On the podcast, we have not. Yeah. But um no. but I, I I've seen it before. Uh like you've seen, seen it in real life. <laughs> uh, in real life, well, not while it was airing, because um, I was like three or four years old when it was airing. Okay, <laughs> and uh, but I watched it in um, high school. Is how I came across it, and it was a thing where um, my one of my friends' parents had the DVDs, and so we were like, "Oh, this was kind of the first time I was like binging a show." Was Northern Exposure, and then Charles. We were friends in high school. We went. We grew up in the same town, and I'm pretty sure I made him watch like the pilot. So Charles had seen that. Years ago, then you know, years later, we start this podcast. Charles is watching the show for the first time, so Charles hasn't finished. So, no spoilers for the end. Yes, sorry, I, I didn't word my question very well, which is why oh. you're all the host of this and not me. But that's kind of that is what I was trying to okay. work out. I was thinking, has Charles actually got to the end yet? So, I'd be really careful about what I say. As well. <laughs> yeah, no, still we still surprises yet. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, we are about six episodes away from finishing yeah. it all out right there mm -hmm. so wow yeah. hopefully we'll get it all we'll get it all out by the end of this year maybe a little bit early in 2024 yeah that's when we're gonna finish out in. close out all the episodes <laughs> right there uh one of the things that i'm really really interested about and I, I i don't know why this didn't occur to me uh i'm sorry how would you like to be referred would you like to be referred to as mr awesome or johnny <laughs> i'm sure this comes about all the time johnny <laughs> no just johnny's fine johnny i really want to ask you about this because uh it didn't occur to me how you might view Northern Exposure a little bit differently since you're in Britain. When you were watching this, especially when the first time you were watching this, did you have any comparison to what you thought this show might be related to? Like for us in America, almost nine out of 10 times, everyone compares it to Twin Peaks, which is a very popular show that was airing around here in the 90s. And I'm wondering over in Britain, was that also something that you knew about? Was this show in which you thought that maybe this is how like all American shows were or did you know that like oh this is something very special it felt really unique to me I did watch Twin Peaks but much later on that's another thing I discovered when I was with my wife we watched that and we really liked that um, but I hadn't seen that so I didn't compare it to that I think it felt quite different to me to a lot of American stuff that I watched like I absolutely loved American films when I was a kid like things like Back to the Future and the Karate Kid and just everything. I, I I just loved all of it. But Northern never really felt like that to me. It felt it felt much more real. I mm -hmm. think the thing that I like the most about Northern is you can't really place it. Like it's not really anything. I don't think it's just it's just it's it's its own thing. It really did kind of carve its own path. Mm -hmm. And 
I think one of the things that that really made it watchable and really like it made really drew you in and made you feel like you sort of wanted to go there was that sometimes nothing really was happening, like nothing or nothing appeared to really be happening. So it had this really sort of lazy feel to it a lot of the time. But I think once you kind of got used to that and you knew that that's kind of how the show was, it became so nice to be there. It was such a mm-hmm. nice, it was never like manic or anything yeah. like that, you know, especially compared to stuff that gets made now. Everything's just, right. you know, within the first minute, some life or death thing or whatever, and trying to, you know, <laughs> to draw you in and make you watch the next episode. But I think that's the thing I liked about it was that it was so, it felt like it was really on its own out there, like an island. Yeah. And it's almost like inviting, like the town, the way you're talking about it. It's, it's like, it kind of, it's not trying to hook you, but it's easy to fall into. It's like comfortable to get into. And then you love all the townsfolk and coming back and hanging out with them. I definitely was more into it than Fleshman when he arrived. Let's put it that way. I was, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I mean, to me, I suppose as well, being from England, I know that it's shot somewhere different and I kind of know the background of it, but Mm -hmm. Just on a first watch and before in later life, I found that stuff out. I did love the idea of going somewhere that was so remote and there was all Mm -hmm. this snow and, you know, people had log cabins and all that kind of thing. But also it's just, wouldn't you love to live in Sicily, you know, like and have Chris on your radio and then go to the brick and all that. I mean, I know you can go to that place where it was filmed, but I doubt, I doubt, I don't know if you, you have ever done that, but I doubt it's quite the same feel as the actually watching the show. But I used to think, oh, it'd be good. Good to spend some time there, wouldn't it, with those people? I'd love it. Yeah. We're, I mean, Charles, we we will have to go there at some point because we've made this, this podcast <laughs> has been years of our lives. So uh, we miss, uh, they usually do like a gathering in the summer and in yeah. the fall. So we will go uh, to Rosalind, Washington is where it was uh, shot. Um, but yeah, well, let's let's hop into the episode of today, The Graduate. Uh, we had asked you what episodes in season six you might like to talk about. This is one you chose. Um, what's your relation to this episode? What are some things you liked about it? Um, yeah. I think the first thing I'll say is it's quite a good episode to really show you the quite strongly the traits of some of the key characters, I think. I think that's one of the things I really like about it because I made a couple of notes. There's there's kind of three things really that are going on, aren't there? There's the Maggie storyline of her buying the cinema. Mm -hmm. And then there's Chris dealing with those two professors. And then there's the whole thing with uh, Patrick turning up and and Holling having this, you know, hidden storyline to do with him potentially being his son and all the rest of it. I think the thing that's quite good about all of those storylines is it really shows you what those characters are like because it shows you like Maggie is is a bit too nice and for a while in the episode you know she doesn't really want to basically be the boss and and kind of you know not be their friend and stuff like that and when things start to go wrong in that cinema she obviously has to so I think Mm -hmm. that I mean I think she even says a line about she has this problem about being too nice so yeah I think it's quite a good episode to sort of see what she you know get a feel for Maggie and then the same with Chris, even though he's amazing and one of the professors is really in his corner, you can see that he starts to question himself and he's almost thinking like, oh, who, you know, who was I kidding? I, I've been in jail and, you know, whatever and all that kind of thing. And I really like how kind of at the last moment he manages to sort of like get that out of the jaws of defeat because it does feel a bit like it's not going to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. They've made it quite, you know, built it up like that. <laughs> so again, for him, sums him up, I think. I think it sort of shows you the sort of two sides of Chris. And then... I think the Holling storyline is just one of my favourite bits, definitely of that series, because 
when it gets to the bit where Patrick comes in and puts that knife on the bar and basically wants to fight him, it's such a comedy scene that is. It's, it really makes me laugh because Patrick and Holling are very much just focused on each other and dealing with this potential knife fight. And then obviously you've watched it. Everyone else is just is commenting. But the way that they throw the lines to different characters is so well done. Yeah. And it kind of and, and the chat escalates. You know, there's like a bit when someone says, Well, how much money has he been sending him? And then someone says like the amount. And then yeah. I think it's um uh who, who works out the total cost? I think it's um Marilyn. Yeah, it is. It's it's Marilyn just very quick does the maths and sort of says the amount. And then so everyone starts to sort of like you know change sides between why Patrick would be cross with Harling and then oh hang on a minute he's been sending this money oh that's a lot of money and all that kind of thing and all that is going on while those two are potentially about to have this knife fight I just found that so funny the first time I watched it I thought it was a brilliant bit of comedy even though it's a quite a serious scene mm -hmm. and also they don't often do a thing in Northern I think where they kind of wrap it up at the end with a sort of everything's okay like not so much as a sort of general sitcom but that one did that was quite nice, that one, in terms of all the way through it, he wasn't seeing, you know, he wasn't happy about Patrick being there. But at the end, it was it was all good. And, you mm -hmm. know, he kind of left and everyone was in a good place. And it just felt quite not like a nice bit of closure to me that I really liked it. Yeah, I really, uh, we were surprised by that reveal that, uh, I mean, like, you can kind of see it. Yeah. You can kind of see it coming if you go back and rewatch. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, like, why would, why is hauling, um, keeping you know he's pretending like he's not patrick's father like what is the secret it's like well what could be worse he killed patrick's father yeah and it definitely uh, that surprised us uh and and yeah the ending is very heartfelt uh and yeah like you were saying what a great way to write that scene of the knife fight to involve the whole town in it um it kind of like makes it a little larger than just a one-on-one -on -one conversation it also um reminds me the way you're describing it it reminds me of like some of those town hall meetings that they have in earlier seasons where the whole town is like experts on yeah. uh, like russian politics or like yeah. <laughs> all these different it's they're all chiming up and everyone's kind of now in this situation like a, uh, an expert on uh hauling and patrick's quarrel yeah. here it's pretty great and also it takes the sort of nastiness out of that thing as well you yeah. know like a knife fight in a bar is not necessarily it's not it's not necessarily a great fit for northern um they found a way of kind of putting that in there without it feeling like a strange fit i think and 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 it is yeah like you say it's nice to sort of involve with the people but it's just it's just perfectly done the two characters that are potentially fighting never sort of break the fourth wall of what they're doing mm -hmm. everyone else is also a little bit it's a bit popcorn isn't it they're all kind of <laughs> turning around for it and then they i think there's almost a bit of a sigh when they sort it out and everyone goes back to their business i think the music maybe starts again as well it's that kind of thing when oh there's mm. nothing to see and everyone kind of goes oh like. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i was going to talk about a little bit in that it's interesting that they live in such a small town that all of everyone's secrets are out there's not like no one is saying like oh that's their business we should keep out of it everyone's like no 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 let's talk about his uh you know his entire life let's see how much he's paid what his child support stuff was how it yeah. came about like let's all get into it we're like we're all you know we're all family here and I always thought that is very funny like you pointed out yeah definitely well I mean, I I think that is the case though isn't it in places that are quite small with not many people and stuff like that and there's not that much to do 
I guess gossip and you know what's going on and stuff becomes a really <laughs> important part of your life. I reckon. I think it yeah. would do because you're not sort of busy with everything going on. You probably, yeah. So it's like oh, something's happening. The thing that's quite funny though is that you think all these people have been going there for years and eating and drinking in Harling's restaurant and know him and all that. And he's a really nice guy. And no one sticks up for him, do they? <laughs> He's not, he's not like not that's in a nasty true. way but everyone just watches it he's thinking yeah. hang on a minute like not one patron go over and say try and sort of stop Patrick and go whoa whoa what's going on here everyone just thinks oh this is going to be you good can't this is something Holly. to watch yeah it's like yeah. No, this is a Holly. very nice after dinner entertainment right here <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, Johnny are you familiar with the poem Casey at the Bat whenever you watch this episode no that's that's I don't, I don't, I, know, I could tell it's a poem because obviously when he's saying it, it's, it's rhyming through, but I don't, I've never heard that before the episode, no. Don't feel bad because I've never heard of it either. And uh, that was written for us. So don't ever feel bad about that. That was yeah. something that I thought was very interesting right here. And just like you said, it wasn't until the end whenever Chris was reciting it that I was like, oh, it's real. I'm an idiot. <laughs> like this is. This is something I should have known in grade school right there. You know, one thing that made me laugh about the episode as well is how, like, just randomly in the middle of it, Maurice is involved. And it's like, you can't sort of have anyone, like, come through the town who's interesting or something without being involved in it. So he, he has, like, like, that dinner, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. They're just there, they're all, like, sort of laughing away. But that's kind of just, it's just thrown in that bit. It's, there's no, there's never, there's no mention of that or setup or anything. Or Yeah, when he's, like, hosting them for dinner. It's like, oh yeah, yeah Maurice it's just, is here. But, but that, again, that's just another really, like, it's a good snapshot episode, I think, of quite a few of the characters. I mean, obviously Joel's not in it, but, you, you know, you, you, you can see there again that Maurice likes to be the sort of big man and they're at his house, aren't they, I think, yeah. for that meal. Mm-hmm. So he's got them around and they're having this, you know, having all the wine and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. it's like he can't miss out on something exciting happening. Yeah, um, people from... Even though it's Chris's um, thing. Yeah. People from the U- University of Anchorage or whatever, it's like... Oh, yeah. they've got some visitors. Got yeah, better, exactly. Uh, invite them over. Exactly. That is an interesting point that you're making there, Donnie, because we know that Maurice can't actually contribute to the conversation as an intellectual heavyweight. Like, between the two professors and Chris, Maurice is obviously going to be the one that understands the least in the conversation. But at the end, Maurice is also the one to point out that it's just literature. Like, y'all are getting into such a such a tits. And yeah. Like you are about to get into a physical fist fight over this. And Maurice has the forethought and realizes like this can't be something in which you're willing to throw away your life for. Like your literal <laughs> life. This can't be it. Yeah, that's maybe why they that's maybe why they had that scene because he he is a step back from it, isn't it? Because those mm. three are completely in the mix and it's like eat, sleep, breathe. And it's really important to all of them. And Maurice is like what I suppose he's the spectator kind of watching that. So yeah, that mm-hmm. line I guess sums it up. It's like someone it's like the voice of reason just going, hey, hang on a minute. We're yeah. talking about if we didn't have kind of thing. If we didn't get Maurice in there, they would just like turn into a hurricane. Just like <laughs> <That'd be> a, <laughs> I think there'd be other. another knife fight. Yeah. <laughs> Two knife fights in one episode. Two knife fights. <laughs> The episode's called Two Knife Fights. You're right. like, wow, this is going to be a really action-packed episode. <laughs> yeah. By the way, before I forget, I put this shirt on because I, I actually bought this shirt because it reminded me of the, a shirt that Harling always wears. Yeah, it's really? sort of a flannel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, wear, I, I sometimes wear it on stage, but I saw it, I saw it online and I thought, oh, I said to my wife, I so like that one that Harling buys. I'm going to buy it. No. So, um, you know, I'm, just, I'm going so... Northern exposure, full geek today. I don't care. I'm, I'm going the whole way, but that's why I'm wearing it. I put it on because of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tribute. Love it. <laughs> so it's not really much of a mystery or like, I, th- I think that a lot of fans realize that season six 
is a stark departure from the rest of Northern Exposure, seasons one through five, and arguably even five is kind of considered into the mix of six. Johnny, I wanted to ask you, did you feel like a, like a palpable distinction and maybe even a dislike of where the series is heading to now in season six with a new executive producer and new people running the show? Or do you think that the show is just taking on like a different but equally as good flavor? I think I had a bit of a 50-50 with it. I think I could really tell the difference. And the, there was one side of me that sort of thought it's kind of slipped a bit and it does feel like one of those later seasons of something. But I think because we'd watched every single episode and we loved the show so much, I think we were starting to get quite kind of nostalgic about the the whole thing as a, a package and also sort of knowing we're going to finish it and come to the end and we'd have no more episodes to watch. So I think in a, in a way, because... I guess if it was just like airing and I'd watched that final season, I probably would have seen it and felt differently about it. But I think because we knew exactly the full amount of it, like, and we, you know, the, and there's not suddenly going to be some more or anything like that, as far as I know, and and we knew that we were watching the last episodes. I think we were so we were really hanging on to that. It was like a real last, you know, last bit that we could get out of it. So I think we mm-hmm. actually probably were in quite a good headspace to view them. So I did, I could see the difference. I didn't, I, I don't think it was necessarily as good as a lot of the past seasons, but we did enjoy it because we were, we didn't want it to finish. So we were right. just kind of, we were getting whatever we could out of it. And I think they did quite well with some of this stuff. I'd, I'd be really careful about what I say, because I know you haven't watched all of it, but I I, I feel like it it is a nice last season and um yeah I'm, I'm not a hater of that oh really that's so interesting and yeah. i can definitely I, I definitely feel the same way as you do whenever you come to an end of a show because oftentimes if there's something that i love like i, I come to have to really accept this into my heart this television show i will re-watch the show before i get to the final episode like i'll get to like the last <laughs> three episodes and i'll be Save like it. it's time to rewatch the entire thing we gotta you can only do this once you gotta get this all over again and then make it to the <laughs> last three right there. wow but I also wanted to quickly say that, like, uh, because we're recording this after we've already done our first part of the podcast episode, but I wanted to say that when we came into this episode, I think, like, the very first thing that I said is that this episode is a return to form. Because I loved it. I thought this episode yeah. was fantastic. I thought this was yeah. very classic Northern Exposure. And even if Joel Fleischman was still on the show, his role really could have been relegated to um, Phil Capra's role. He could have fulfilled like the same thing. Mm-hmm. The episode still would have functioned just the same in, a, in yeah. this capsule. So yeah, yeah. I think this is like a fantastic one right there. There's also a really good link in it with David Chase. So I'm a massive Sopranos fan as well. That's another of like my absolute favorite shows. Mm-hmm. And you know David Chase kind of wrote and produced both of those, like Northern mm-hmm. and Sopranos. And there's the dream sequence with Chris in. Mm. And then if you watch Sopranos, there's quite a few moments where it goes to a dream sequence. He does it quite a lot. And I wonder whether that was like an early experimentation for yeah. of David Chase is that the dream sequence that's in The Graduate. Because it, it does feel like that. The fact it is literally a dream as well. Like when he comes out of it, Chris just sits up in bed. He's like, right. oh. and they have so <laughs> many moments like that in The Sopranos with Tony where it's just a weird, off the wall, really strange thing, quite Twin Peaks feeling kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then one of the characters just wakes up, and it's you know, it's sort of it meant something or whatever. So I quite like that as well because 
I know he went on to do Sopranos, so there's a bit of me that thinks, oh, maybe he got to kind of experiment a bit in this last season. Yeah, and we see a lot of dream sequences in Northern Exposure, but in season six, there was like, for a while, it was like, I guess they kind of like lost that. So it was really, really nice to see that dream sequence with with uh, Chris, even though it was like a little brief moment, but it was really fun. Yeah, and like and as an actor, it must be really fun when you've just always played the same character in the same yeah. few locations and the rest of it, to suddenly kind of be making like a little movie Mm-hmm. I bet it was a really good day at work. It was like, oh, we get to do the war thing today, and there's like, you yeah. know, different people come on the set and then and all that, and they've got you know the, the guns and they're diving down. And there's like things going <laughs> off and all. I bet you know. I imagine that was a good effects. day at work. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's probably what made him interested in the script to um, Forty Seven Meters Down. I think. I think that, <laughs> yeah. that gave him a taste for those kind of action action films yeah <laughs> that's awesome we didn't uh, we didn't talk about it too much charles the set of that dream sequence is like they sort of built a uh i guess like a war zone but you can kind of see especially towards the end of the dream sequence when like chris is crawling he ends up like uh pointing his gun and then he sees that he's like aiming down his barrel at himself mm-hmm. but you can kind of see in the scenery you can see like the K-Bear neon sign. So they're kind of like just, they just built like a little war zone set out, um, you know, I guess out in front of K-Bear, like in that area. Oh, really? That's so interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't notice that until when I did the rewatch before the pod, I I noticed the same thing with the sign. I sort of thought, oh, it's it's kind of like, I I thought it might even be in the, supposed to be like in the studio, like in the radio station, but perhaps it was outside. But yeah, it's certainly linked to where he's at. Uh, where he's, you know, where he regularly works. Yeah, no, that could be it too. Like maybe, like I'm imagining as he's crawling and getting towards the end of his dream, he's becoming more like, you know, at first it was sort of this fantasy, um, sort of uh, this uh, metaphor for whatever was going on. And then he, you know, kind of looks at it point blank and it's all coming to reality. He's like in K-Bear, he's like, it's he's waking up and he's realizing to himself, he's like, how's he going to decide? What's he going to do to... To get this to cinch this master's degree, I don't know. Was it a bit? Was it a really big show in America? You know, it actually yes, it was very popular. Um, at this point, it was not um, hitting as many you know viewers as much, but it was uh, it's very popular and very critically successful. Won a lot of awards, though. I think it sort of um, sort of died down because of uh, we learned a little bit of history from talking with another guest, Moose Chick, there was a uh, a lawsuit where, I don't remember the exact details, but basically this writer had written a spec script that was purchased um, by one of the production, like the studios or something, and it was never produced. And then after the success of Northern Exposure, he brought up a lawsuit saying, hey, this show is basically this script that I wrote that was purchased. Like, you guys bought this script for me and never produced it. And a lot of the things that happen in your TV show uh, were taken from my script. And um, the courts ruled in his favor, the writer's favor. So at that point, I'm guessing it was like season four or five uh, when this lawsuit happened. I'd have to look it up to get the facts right. But at that point, they had lost so much money through this lawsuit that the show was not really going to be able to make any money, like to make money back. So I think it was around that point. Again, I could be getting the dates wrong. I think it was around that point when they were they got David Chase involved. It's like you need to finish the show, 
like find a way to end it. Yeah. Um, which would have been around season five. Certainly in season six, they were probably like, we can't, you know, we, we couldn't continue this too much longer. That's, um, again, I don't, I'm getting this from just a few sources, but that seems in my mind what makes the most sense. And after the show uh, finished, you know, it was, there was a couple um, VHS episodes released and then it kind of took a while before the whole show came out on DVD. And then even then, uh, the, I don't know if you've noticed Johnny, or it might be different on your copies, but in America on the DVD release, uh, a lot of the music has been replaced for cheaper um, songs that are like a lot cheaper to license. Yeah. I'm not sure which is which, but I heard the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard the same thing. And I, I just, I just, you know, so much music through it. I don't know. I don't know when it's, it's like going to like a right. library or whether it's, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's one of the reasons it's never just been put onto one of the streaming things. I think that's I, exactly that's exactly someone it. was saying that it's so difficult to do it because of the music, which is a real mm -hmm. shame because I actually think if it was just if they just put it onto Netflix or something and said that's there, I think it would do really well. I think mm -hmm. I think people would watch it. We think it. so too. Yeah. So I think largely mm. to answer your question is I, I think maybe again I, I might just be putting things together, uh, jumping to conclusions, but I think that lawsuit really stunted the profit of Northern Exposure. And uh, even though it was a, you know, critically acclaimed, widely popular show, it was, you know, there was no interest in um, preserving it on home video, like, you know, paying money to relicense all these songs. Yeah. Uh, it was just, you know, it wasn't very profitable. So kind of got shunted and um, now it's sort of a cult hit. And uh, well, we can say that in, um, at least in North America right now, I think Maybe in maybe in Britain as well. You can for the first time you can purchase the series digitally. Okay. Um, and it's it's a uh, 1080. It's HD. Um, so that was literally back in like July or August. For the first time ever, it's available like not to stream, I guess, but to to purchase digitally and watch it uh, online, I guess. Okay, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I like my I like my DVD, so I right. like. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I like getting one out and putting one in and all that. It's it, it, uh, you know I've still got a vinyl collection and things like that. I'm very yeah. much into the uh, the retro stuff. But yeah, that is good for that's good for people that don't have a DVD player. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I agree. I think for the longest time, and you know, like I said, I, I I when the show was airing, I was just like a baby, you know. So for me, this was a show that existed on DVDs, like if maybe you would find it at the library on DVDs or like at a thrift store, bargain store on DVDs. But it's like, yeah, the only way you can watch this, you can't stream it. You got to have the DVDs and, you know, take them out, put them in. I think that that makes it that just, it's, in a way, it's sort of, it's perfect, really. I think it almost just fits with the whole world of Northern Exposure that yeah, it's like that. The remoteness of, you know, when, <laughs> when Joel first gets there and he's like, sort of thinking what what is this and you know this is not what i signed up for and all the rest of it and it's it just feels so sort of basic and all that i kind of mm. i kind of like that for a long time it was just on dvd it sort of fit, feels like quite a nice yeah fit <laughs> yeah it's not it's like not your not in the norm it's kind of like almost like yeah. a little ritual that you do you to, to enter into this uh yeah, into this past time too it's also for us you know it's kind of like going back in time to the 90s to see it's such a time capsule of that period. I wanted to also piggyback off of what Leah just said. 
the show was very famous in the early 90s. It had won two Peabody Awards, a couple Emmys in its pocket. It was doing very well right there. And like Lee said, that lawsuit really took the wind out of its cell. But that's kind of interesting in that it made Northern Exposure famous in another way. Because that lawsuit is actually heavily referenced. Every law school student knows that lawsuit because it paved the way till now. I do want to uh, talk quickly about the facts of that case. Uh, it was, univ- I said NBC, but it was Universal um, who, you know, I guess was owning Northern Exposure. The writer was uh, someone named Sandy Vaith. And the script, I think, was like Coletta, Colada was the name of it. The reason people have a misunderstanding of the script is because the Variety article that came out that wrote about it was incorrect. So now everyone references that Variety article. You have to use the one that's like written in the court case. Yeah. Also, I I wanted to also say like there were, Northern, like all great shows, I, I just have to say this. This seems to be a recurring habit for just titans in their field. There just seems to be a conglomeration of problems that come from internal and external. And what I mean by this is that uh, Rob Morrow himself was also one of the factors that was contributing toward Northern Exposure's change in that I believe there was a lot of contract disputes between him and the showrunners, him and the writers or something like that. I believe that there was something going on in which Rob Morrow disagreed and that was also a heavy factor into how the show would progress forward. Yeah, I mean, he certainly started to come off it, didn't he? He was, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was like the lead, really. Um, even though, you know, there's a lot of big characters in it, but I, I guess he's he was always the lead. But then, as it went on to the later stuff, he just, I mean, obviously it's it's part of the storyline, but they're having to write the story like that, aren't they? Because yeah. it's like they haven't got him to be on the screen, so they had <laughs> yeah. to come up with a way of explaining that. Um, there's a classic thing over here. You, you'll never have heard of this, but it's very funny. I'm going to tell you about it. There's a there's a soap opera over here called Coronation Street, which has run for years and years, forever. And there was a famous thing once where someone's daughter went upstairs after an argument or something, dump, 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 went up the stairs. And then they switched the actor over for some sort of reason. So the next time that they came down the stairs in the house, it was someone else. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It's like really famous over here. It's like just a hilarious thing as in like everybody went, oh, what? You didn't think we'd notice that? You know? Was there was there any like wink, wink, nod, nod to the audience that this had happened? Or did they just, no. they, they just went forward? They're like, no one questioned. No, I don't know why they changed the person. Like, it was a girl, but they, but they changed her over. She went off when she came back down to someone else. Obviously over two episodes, but it was just it was just so funny because everyone's just immediately went. Everyone just called it out. But that was kind of the before the internet. So, you know, it, you didn't have yeah. like an immediate Twitter storm about it or anything mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, I just I thought you might appreciate that one. That's so funny. Definitely. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in Northern Exposure, not not actual changing the actors, but we went back and watched the pilot and like certain things like uh, Hollings makeup like he has much uh, stronger five o'clock shadow his skin tone's a little different a little bit of the like costuming is you know the, I think they were like just trying to find the right looks for people and then yeah uh, I guess you know like any other pilot maybe they shot that uh, you know a bit ahead of time and then once you know the series was really rolling they shot the rest of the episodes so from episode one to the next episodes, it kind of seems like there's a little bit of a, a uh, little bit of a shift, but not as crazy as uh, Coronation Street going up the stairs and back down. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm going to have to find that clip. I think, I think another thing that, that drew me into it was I really like Ed because at the time yeah. when I was watching it, I was first getting into bands and I was listening to Nirvana and, and people like that. And just 
like loving the whole sort of grunge thing and all that. And then and, it, and within this kind of charming, snowy, middle of nowhere place, you've got this guy that looks like he is about to go to a gig or something and, and <laughs> yeah. see like Pearl Jam or something. So that was another thing that really kind of drew me in was that it was at a time when I was discovering that world and he 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 was definitely older than me, but he, look, he was the sort of person I think, oh, he'd probably be a cool guy to talk about bands with or go to a gig with or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I like how he's... Uh... He's kind of introduced uh, in uh, in his character as like a lot of like hip music, you know. Is that's his uh, that's his jam. And then I also love how they build on the sort of like film buff uh, quality. And this episode is like you know he's he's like programming films for Maggie's Cinema. Uh, what do you? Yeah, would you would you go to this uh, movie theater? The the screenings that that Ed has chosen. Have to be slightly careful because my wife is about, but. <laughs> I would go to anywhere that Maggie was. <laughs> Is there, can I speak to the manager? Is the manager here? It's like, <laughs> I'm going to need to talk to the manager. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it, it is quite interesting how it starts off with Ed programming. There's a bit, isn't there, where she says, you think people will come and watch that? It's yeah. like some French film in black and white or something. And Ed goes, it's really serious. He goes, oh yeah. Like really people like, love you know, this those, is good stuff or whatever. Stories. Um, and then by the end, obviously, the, the, it's it's very funny as well because the the film that they use when she's going to make the change and go mainstream is Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, and I think that played out even funnier now watching it back than it probably did at the time, <laughs> because it's just such a funny film to think of to sing. What would be what is the like the opposite. film to sort of go mainstream? Yeah, yeah and and when <laughs> she says it, Ed's face is brilliant. He's just absolutely gutted. <laughs> That they're going to show Dumb and Dumber in that theater. That, but no, that it's great. Film, it's great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was going to say that film has taken a lot of heat from different individuals, and I guess different shows now. Apparently, Northern Exposure they, uh, <laughs> you know, gave it a little dig. I know that Dumb and Dumber was something that infuriated Al Franken. Uh, he was a writer oh, really? on Saturday Night Live, and he's a <laughs> senator, or he was a senator. A uh, United States senator. He was a comedian to a United States senator. It's a very fascinating uh, <laughs> career line. change right there. Yeah. <laughs> but. When he was still a comedian and he was writing for television and films, he had written a film called uh, Stuart Saves the World, I want to say is what it was called. And it opened up against Dumb and Dumber. Mm. And Stuart Saves the World was also a comedy, but it was more like, uh, nowadays you would probably call it like a uh, like a dramedy or something. Like it's got a lot mm -hmm. of heart. It's got a lot of intellect behind okay. it, a lot of wit. And, oh, uh, Stuart yeah. Saves His Family. Sorry, I, was, I didn't know about family. it, but I was just looking That's it up. It. Okay. And that one bombed against Dumb and Dumber, and that infuriated <laughs> Mr. Franken because you know you have a you have a title called Dumb and Dumber. You're going to go against <laughs> you your lost film, to Dumb and Dumber, and that made him. I want to say that like made him quit comedy. Oh, like wow. I want to say that's the thing. I don't know if it like yeah. directly contributed to it, but mm -hmm. it was a factor. Mm -hmm. And I, I I think it's so funny how that film has earned a lot of heat. I've not watched it since it came out, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know whether I'd watch it now and think, actually, this is a really funny film, or whether I'd go, this is absolutely terrible. Like, I really cannot, I get the, I, I sort of can think of the premise of it and the, the two actors in it, but I just cannot remember what the quality of it is like, whether it, it, it is... It's, it's good. Whether it's we, we like it, but it, but it really depends on, like, it's really dumb, obviously. It's dumb humor, but yeah, <laughs> it depends on your... Uh, so you would there. go to the you would have gone to Maggie's theater to watch it then. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Like I I definitely would see probably anything that Ed would program just cuz like it's like oh, small town like what is what does Ed think is what does Ed think is cool? Like I want to I want to yeah. know what 
he thinks is a good movie. But then also yeah. I'm with Maggie too. Like um, she was talking about like turning the films over multiple times a week. Um, I would be happy with just like the same thing all week. But if she wants to show like, I would also love to see like the, the newer film, the first run films is what she says. So yeah, I kind of want to balance as well. It looks good though. It's like a, a proper old, you know, movie theater and just uh, it's kind of a bit falling down and stuff. But I, I like that kind of thing. I much yeah. rather go something like that. Just got to bring your own snacks, your own popcorn, yeah, uh, to avoid that bacterial infection. <laughs> well, uh, Johnny, I think we could probably start wrapping this up, but I didn't want to uh, do that without um, letting you. If you have anything to plug or anything you'd like to uh, to say before we sign off, um, I want to say thank you. I'd like thank to try you. and get a screen grab of the three of us if we can, yeah, so that we can. I'd like to put something on social and say it's one of my career highlights doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the only thing I was going to say was I'm just quite excited about this as well. I'm running the London Marathon next year. Ooh. Oh. So for the first time, I'm taking on, yeah, a marathon. And it's, you know, they say like London's one of the big ones. It's up there mm. with, uh, with a lot of the, the sort of well-known ones. So if anybody enjoyed anything I said today and they found it funny or if you've been in your life touched by the terrible thing that is cancer I'm I'm raising money for the cancer the world cancer research fund and I've just got a page going which is like a fundraising page so I, I go on about it quite a lot at the moment because I'm training and stuff so if you just go on my social media all of my social media is Johnny Awesome spelled A-W-S-U-M for awesome just to reiterate, Johnny's handle is at J-O-N-N-Y-A-W-S-U-M. You can also find his website with the same spelling, johnnyawesome.com. And yeah, if anybody wants to donate to, to that cause, that would be great. But other than that, I just want to say thanks to you two because I've been really excited. And it's been a while, hasn't it? I messaged you a long time ago. Yeah. It's been a while coming. <laughs> it's been taking us a while to get through season six. But thanks for first reaching out to us uh, in the first place. And thanks for still being there when we... Uh, when we hit you back up, because I think it was like before our hiatus when we were like, all right, no yeah. problem. We come back. No yeah. problem. Thank you. Well, cool. Johnny, thanks so much. Uh, very, it was also very inspiring to hear uh, that you enjoyed this last portion of Northern Exposure because we've got only a few episodes left, Charles. Um, I'm kind of excited. Yeah, this was a great one. Uh, very happy to have you on, Johnny. Thanks so much for uh, for doing this. Just don't forget, Charles sometimes does a thing where before he watches the last episode, he watches all the episodes again. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to do we're, it, Charles? We're running this back. <laughs> yeah, we're going back to beginning the episode one. It'll we'll be like another five marathon, years before we get there. marathon watch. <laughs> how many days it would take. We could do it. Uh, but. <laughs> more, more, more than you would like to uh, do. <laughs> All right, thank well, you uh, thank you again, Johnny, for coming on. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. And and listen, seriously, well done for, for, for sticking with it and doing it because I think it's a, a lovely thing to have out there. And I had I had a moment of thinking, oh, wonder if there's a podcast or if you know, wonder if anyone else <laughs> kind of likes it. And I and I did a Google and, and that's how I find your your show. And I quite often listen to an episode when I'm driving back from a gig late at night. And it's a really nice thing to have on, you know, just me in the yeah. car coming back from somewhere. It's dark mm. and it, it, fit, it fits well with the drive home. I was also going to plug this. I, I, I'm sorry. I forgot <laughs> to plug it for you, uh, Johnny. If you want to see Johnny perform, you can easily see it on YouTube. Like if you just yeah. type in Johnny Awesome into there, you can see him on Britain's Got Talent. And it's wonderful. I watched um, two of them, two different ones, which were musical performances right there. 
and they're lovely. And honestly, I think it kind of goes with the vibe of a Northern Exposure watcher. Like something that's very, <laughs> it's very whimsical and uh, witty and charming and sweet to see with a lot of heart. It really it complements the flavor. So if you're a fan of Northern Exposure, I highly encourage you to just hop on YouTube and go check Johnny Awesome out. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. You also sent us a video of a uh, Savannah Cider commercial which is very moose themed. I'll have to like post that on social as well. Oh, we'll tag you. Right. Yeah. So listeners. The, the, th <laughs> the reason I sent you that was just because I wanted you to see it and know like I was so excited when I got that part because when the script came through and it was everything was just to do with mooses and it was in a bar and it was moose and I just thought, wow, this is like Northern Exposure. What you don't see when you look at that advert is that we filmed that in South Africa and it was absolutely boiling hot and it was we were we were so hot and to the point where they were strapping ice packs under our clothes wow. to try and keep us from like overheating or whatever because yeah, so, you're you're like in winter wear in the commercial yeah right? yeah and i've like got i mean i'm not going to spoil it but i've got the most amazing headwear on haven't i yes um, <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't light or cool. It was it was the opposite of those two things. How, how many ice packs could they fit in there <laughs> They had to keep swapping them over. I yeah. mean, we had a good time. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll finish on this. I'll tell you that we were in Cape Town filming that. And on the last day, someone from the production company came over and said, guys, you've done a really good job. Like me and the other guy that were acting in the commercial. Uh, we got you some tickets to say thank you. And we opened this envelope and we had two tickets to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And they were playing in an open air football stadium in Cape Town. So a couple of hours later, we were stood with a beer, you know, stars above us and, and watching the chili peppers. So it was a good it was a good ending to a beautiful a very hard shoot. But yeah, I think the ad's quite funny. It's quite good. Very nice. Yeah. Great work. Okay. Charles, next week we're gonna be back with the 18th episode in season six. It's called Little Italy. And actually since we're here right now, Charles, you haven't watched this episode yet. Sometimes I like to see if you can predict what's gonna happen. What do you think is going to happen in Little Italy? Oh, man, with a title like that, I wonder what it, what it could be about. I'll try to be a little bit more specific and say, is there anyone with Italian heritage in Northern Exposure? Mm. I know it's not going to be hauling, maybe a little bit in Maurice. Let's just say that someone discovers their roots and yeah. that they want to develop a cultural center that is related to their roots in Sicily, but they're going to face a lot of callbacks. Oh, you know what? Phil Capra. Phil Capra, that's the that's the Italian person. <laughs> Why didn't I connect that? Yeah, there you Phil go. Phil Capra is going to do something in which he wants to form his own small sub-community within Sicily, and it's going to face resistance. Let's see if my prediction comes true. Good work there. All right, Charles, uh, I'll see you next week. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Johnny Awesome for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.